Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. One of my favorite things is when someone can really cross disciplines and bring a sense of sort of fusion together in, in the work they do and the way they approach the world. And no one that I know personifies this more than William Hurley or Worley. Worley is a serial entrepreneur. He's one of the most creative people I know. One of the best things about Will is he brings a childlike enthusiasm and energy to everything he does, and I think it's part of what's made his startups and his companies so successful. And so it's really exciting to have a conversation and share it with you with my good friend, Will Hurley. So, Will Hurley, first question. Whirly, where does Whirly come from? Oh, so that's that's like the rest of the two hours. What a great question. Um, so I went to work at Apple in the early 90s, and there were these two guys who are really, really good friends of mine now, years later, almost 30 years later, because I'm just rounding up, you know, like two or three years, it'll be 30 years I've known these guys. Mike Irwin, who's the current partner um, of mine at the fund that we just launched, and Sebastian Hassinger, who's worked with me at a variety of things and will inevitably work with me again, who were the cool guys on kind of the Unix floor at Apple. And uh, Sebastian... Cool guys on the Unix floor. Yeah. Sebastian gave me that name. Um, and it was derogatory. <laughs> it was not a compliment. It was like whirly, like whew, crazy guy, right? And... Uh, like tilt a whirly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Sebastian would love to be in on this interview. I'm sure he could come with even worse things. But um, so I, I didn't really necessarily love it for a long time. And then in 2006, um, a venture capital firm was looking for a CTO uh, at a tech company in Tel Aviv. And uh, I didn't understand that this is how the Valley can work sometimes, but two really famous people, Brian Balendorf and the Apache Foundation, uh, and Tom Bishop, who had been the CTO of Tivoli and BMC and really well-known, you know, engineer, um, had both recommended me. So like, I, like I was going to get the job, right? Cause these two great people, you know, the VC reached out and they were like, we need somebody who knows systems and knows open source. And these two famous people said that this guy was great. So he's, you know, he's the guy. Um, and one of the conditions was that I call myself Whirly because it had kind of caught on in open source and other stuff. We will hire you, but you have to go by a nickname. It wasn't a have to. It wasn't a have to. But the way the story goes is real simply. I was, you know, flipping through the agreement because I was like, wow, I thought I was here to interview, not just like sign up like I had a job. And I was flipping through the pages, as working my way back to like what the offer looks like. And, uh, yeah, you know, they're like, oh, and it'd be great, you know, and your cards can just say Whirly and blah, blah, and I'm flipping through and I get the back page. And, you know, what I was explaining was, well, so this is kind of something that's derogatory. I've never really used it. I don't really have a personal brand or whatever. And I get the last page and I saw the numbers and I was like, but I've been thinking about having a personal brand for quite some time now. And this might be the moment in time to launch that. So signed, right? <laughs> I really don't like this name. Here's the number. But I've really been warming up. I mean, to that's it. honesty. That is it, that is exactly what happened. On and, and, yeah, it, it literally was like, <laughs> but um, 
if it makes that big a difference to you, it is not that important to me. I have all. no ego involved in this whatsoever. You could call me Bob for this number. Um, and then it, it kind of used, um, I like to call it an accidental personal brand because I've never put any effort into it. I built my first website um, about three years ago after Goldman Sachs bought Honest Dollar because I didn't have one and it became evident that I needed something with some material on it. Uh, before that, I've done a, a horrible job of giving it any time or attention as far as utilizing it in my career. Uh, but in but you know a variety of things happened. It got used more and more. And then in 2016, I got the opportunity to host President Obama at South by Southwest, uh, which was on Friday, and we announced the sale of this company to Goldman Sachs on Monday. And we didn't tell the president about Goldman Sachs, and we didn't tell Goldman Sachs about the president. <laughs> we were just like, we'll just kind of ride the crest of this wave through South by, and then at the end of it, be like, greatest South by ever. Well, it's in a long line of of behind closed doors Goldman Sachs relationships <laughs> right. for politicians. And, so and, it's to totally and it, and that's and actually the standard operating procedure of interactions with Goldman Sachs well, and well, sitting presidents or soon well, to be he, your former. <laughs> well, he well, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I came to you when I was when this was an opportunity. I said, hey, man, I need some advice. Right. And you recommended a bunch of books, a bunch of stuff I read. And, you know, what I learned was they used to be the first call the president would make. Like, we're in economic trouble. Like, quick, call Goldman Sachs, right? Yeah, like the J.P. Morgan of 1907 is now Lloyd Blankfein. <laughs> and then now something happened, you know, and then all of a sudden, and there's people there that are really upset about it, right? I mean, they'll cry about it, right? Because it's, you know, some a few assholes took 140-plus years of, you know, whatever. And I, I wouldn't say, like, all, you know, I'm not— by any means saying like bankers are saints, but you know, like they're just people but, like but, everybody, else. but they're just people and there's good people and there's bad people. But the thing is, is like, I didn't know. So I was doing this research, but the point is, is back to the, the question you asked about the worldly thing is like, I, uh, you know, president Obama got up on stage and, and unbeknownst to anyone. And, and, you know, I'd briefly talked to him. I was going to talk to him more later because we were trying to rush everything. And we got this built. We were at the Austin Music Hall, which was going to be torn down. So it's like, we, we, we got to do this event fast. Like, I literally think it's getting <laughs> torn down tonight. <laughs> and so we're rushing everything through. And President Obama says, you know, I want to think Whirly, you know. And uh, oh, I, the, you sent me the clip, I think, later that night. And then, you know, Lloyd Doggett and everybody that was in democratic politics, it was like, well, yes, of course I know Worley. I mean, Worley and I go way back. Worley, 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 you know, and people, you know, and the, and the, you know, the Mayor Adler saw me at the next event and he, you know, I'm pretty darn sure he used to always say, you know, hey, Will, what's going on? And he was like, Worley, you know, blah, blah, blah. and it just like, then it's like, well, once Obama said it, then like everybody says it, right? And now you're Worley forever now. That's well, it. And the thing is, is um, I always trip over it because I'm my inclination is just to say will, which is fine, right? Like but I, 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 I go back and forth kind of naturally because there's something slightly cheesy about using, using like the Twitter shorthand. Look, tag I don't, version. I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I mean, originally what happened was Sebastian and Mike and all the cool Unix guys. I'm gonna continue to say that. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna own that one. They, they used to have cool names like Draconis and Singe and all these things. And so it was kind of an insult because they put it in as like W. Hurley, right? Like Whirly, it's my first initial last name. But once you put things into the system at Apple, they're, they're there forever, right? Like you can't 
Yeah, they're written in code and then written in stone, literally, <laughs> literally immediately right, after yeah, the like, account it, like, is it made. wasn't, it wasn't changing. <laughs> and so, and so, um, so it was super, uh, so it was super interesting. And then, um, uh, you know, and, and other things happened during that same time. Like before that happened, uh, a couple of years before, Amex sent me an Amex card and it said Worley. And I was like, well, that's. And it was just because they just did the short name, like just did the letter and then the letter, or did you actually? No, it was like I had been at CES and I had spoken at a thing and an Amex person saw me and then I went by like the Amex Agent and they're like, oh, you know, it'd be cool. Like you should do this with your card and all this. And then they, they, they did this for me and it was like, I mean, I didn't like ask for it. They just, they kind of did it and it was like, well, that's kind of cool. You packed a lot of pretty amazing stuff into that explanation. But it all starts with the fact that you you got into this tech universe having never even gone to college. Never. Well, let well let's clear this up. Um, there were two ridiculously amazing women I was attracted to when I was a young man out of high school that were in the lab band, jazz band, at Temple Junior College. It's now Temple College. Um, and I did take an electronic music course as a way to be able to get into lab band, jazz band, uh, as a way to be like, look, I could be a cool musician too. Um, uh, and I was super into the music, and I played music. So, I mean, in theory, like if I was running for president and it was like, he said never went to college, people were like, he took two elective courses at college, the liar. Like, it's one I did, Pinocchio. Right. I did. I did. For electric keyboard elective. <laughs> right. I did do that. <laughs> um, which, you know, so, you know, whenever I'm with somebody who's, you know, I have two PhDs from MIT in quantum physics, what do you do? I say, like, well, you know, I have taken electronic music class before. And uh, <laughs> if Holiday Inn would pay me, I'd be like, I stayed at a Holiday there's, Inn. There's Express. more than two notes. So it's kind of like quantum. Computer. Right. Um, but uh, this, you know, what, what it comes down to is I was playing music um, and having a lot of fun. I wasn't really doing anything with my life, but I wasn't wasting my life either, right? There's this there's this, um, this, thing people do where it's like because somebody isn't being productive in the way they think they should be productive, right? Or they're not just economically productive. There's not a way to judge them through some societal lens. It's like, well, they're wasting their life, right? It's like my life back then, you know, I look back and I go, some amazing days, right? Like it was great. And, and unfortunately it was, uh, you know, waylaid by a, a tragic accident where I was riding with a friend of mine and a couple of girls in a car midday and it was lightly raining. And, uh, you know, he was driving a little too fast and we got in a bad accident. I was the only person injured and I had a fence post come and hit me, you know, on my lower right side, uh, you know, belly area and run all the way up to my left, you know, shoulder uh, and crush most of my internal organs. And I was dead on the scene and then I came to and then the ambulance came and then I went to Scott and White Hospital in Temple. And while I was at Scott and White, they did all these tests and I had this huge bruise that went across like a driver's side seatbelt, but I was a passenger. I kept saying something's not right. And they said, you're delirious. You've been in this accident. You know, you're, you're really shaken up. You know, that's from the seatbelt. And they sent me home, and my dad drove by the H-E-B and went inside and told everybody that knew me there, you know, stories for 30 minutes while I was sitting in the car to get Sprite and stuff like that, you know, because parents 
for Gen Xers solve everything with Sprite. Right? It's like, oh, you're sick. <laughs> Get some Sprite. Or ginger ale. Yeah, I have no idea why Sprite or ginger ale is a cure-all. You get ginger ale and stir the bubbles out of it. It is a tonic that cures cancer. Yeah, it does everything, apparently. <laughs> I've still not understood that. I don't even like Sprite. But, <laughs> but um, And then we went home, and I was laying in bed dying. Right, I had been bleeding internally at this point for hours. I mean, it's a, it, it, I mean, I should be dead by all accounts. It happened on Friday the thirteenth, nineteen ninety one, and my brother had come home and he had been, he had joined the army, uh, you know, to follow my dad's footsteps, and he uh, was a medic, and he looked at me and I looked like a battlefield injury, right? And he freaked out. My dad said, "Yep, we're taking you right back to the hospital." Got up, I'm walking by the bathroom, and I said, "Just a minute, I don't feel so well." Just threw up a couple liters of blood. Oh, and it God, races across town to the hospital. I walk in, I see the doctor. I say, I told you something's wrong. And then I'm just blacked out. He looks white as a ghost. It's literally like a movie scene. You know, I see the lights going above me, and there's this anesthesiologist, and this doctor says, you, You're older than 18. You have to sign this, or we can't operate on you, and you're going to die. Right? Which brings in a whole bunch of questions about the medical, right? It's like, <laughs> you're in no condition to sign this, but if you don't sign it, <laughs> then, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything. Yeah, right? that's a strange that, moment. That, that's a really, you know, looking back on it, and when you think about the debates we have over the medical system and stuff, you know, that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's fucked up in that, right? But um, I went through 13 hours of exploratory surgery and spent a couple of weeks in the ICU, and then I moved in with my grandmother, and I took the insurance money, and I built a digital recording studio out of ADATs, right? Do you, do you do you ever come across these? They used VHS tapes to record eight tracks of digital audio. Oh, you remember yes, these I remember these. And yeah. so I had the first 48-track ADAT studio anywhere in the South. And so... Um, You're like, I can't walk, but... <laughs> and I had a Mac... And I had Macromind Director, and I could do stuff for CDs and stuff. And so these people were, like, able to, you know, they'd go to Elisis or whoever, and they'd be like, hey, we want to really work with some of this. And be like, I had it. So I was able to rent it and, like, rent it virtually and do stuff. And I was making a little money, right? Um, and uh, that was kind of my first business. And I, I wouldn't say it's a business. I wasn't really running it like a business. I wasn't really um, – you know, I was just, it was more doing cool music stuff. Yeah. And then a guy named Graham Jones and I started messing around. We found out that the MIDI simpty timing was off on everything in Director always. So you're building a CD for IBM. So what does that mean? So you're, uh, and I don't want to name any shops. I almost named two just then. <laughs> Self-editing. But say you're one of these big shops in Austin. We're living an hour north in Temple. Then you're doing a CD for IBM. $300,000, $500,000 are charging them to this CD for the trade show. Remember those stupid CDs that used to look like business cards and they'd custom cut them and all that? Right. You're making these things, charging all this crazy money for them. Uh, and you'd get the Golden Master and then you play it and the music wouldn't be synced with the video or the, the you know, things wouldn't line up because it was using this MIDI SMPTE timing channel and it was off. And we found that we could write in the scripting language called Lingo, these X objects, and we could embed these X objects. So you send us your project, we do some magic, and we charge $5,000 an hour, and in a couple of hours, problem solved, right? So $10,000 on a $300,000 project, 
was absolutely highway robbery. I mean, there was no doubt. <laughs> we were pirates. Grant, you know, Grant was buying weed and guitars and synthesizers, and I was buying new basses and rum, and we were just like, this is great. And we wouldn't get a lot of people like, well, that couldn't have been a business. It's like, yeah, you'd see one every, like, two months. You know, one summer we got, like, three or four. It's like, but you're, like, 22 years old, and you just made $40,000 in the summer, and the rest of the year is writing your cool songs for your band that is for sure going to make it. <laughs> right. Um, and that, now what year is this now that you're doing this? It's like 90, 92, 93. So, I mean, this is pre-internet time, really. I mean, it, it, I mean the internet exists, but so, it, it's so not a is, thing that any, it's like you're on Usenet groups, if, if yeah, anything. Yeah. Dial-up modem. People are like still using AOL. 56K baud modems. People are still using AOL. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a, all these things kids don't know about. Right. And then uh, uh, Apple, you know, Graham said, oh, man, we, we should work at Apple. They're hiring in Austin. Now, who's the CEO of Apple in 92? Is it Gil Emilio? Yes. I'm so pretty Apple's sure not in a great Scully, spot. Scully's not there. I get that time yeah. mixed up yeah, all the yeah. time. Gil Emilio's there. Apple's not in a great spot, but they're still Apple. Right. And you're like too nerd geeks that do music and did a apple had a presence in texas at that time huge presence this is the thing that upsets me about the recent news about apple's investing a billion dollar campus people are like will it change austin it's like yeah you do know that the second largest campus for apple has been here since the 90s right like it's i mean they're gonna add five thousand people to like uh, 20,000 already or something. It's like, it's really not that big a change. They're just finally investing money into actually building something worth a shit instead of renting a bunch of different buildings. Right. So, I mean, I just like, I found all those articles laughable, right? It's mm -hmm. like, okay, that just shows how little any tech reporter or any reporter in Austin knows about it. The, you know, in the 89 earthquake happened, Apple lost inside, inside sales and support. And that cost the stock severely. It's part of what helped drive them down. And so they moved it to Austin because it's a disaster-free area. So all inside sales and support and accounting, that stuff was all done here. That way, if there was another earthquake, all of that stuff just kept humming yeah, along. The right? revenue stuff, selling. Exactly. <laughs> it's like we can fix some of this other stuff that goes offline, but if we don't sell the products, yeah. we run out of job. We run out of the ability to pay people real fast. Yeah, and so they had these this opportunity to apply for jobs, and we heard through a friend of a friend, and we met this guy, Ben. Ben Clark, and he interviewed us, and uh, he's like, well, you guys are pretty talented, and we could use multimedia talent, but you know what we're really hiring for is people to be on the phones and uh, help people support stuff, and that, you know, and then I'm like, uh, he's like, but we have this group. It's a new group. It's going to support movie studios. We want to get product placement, and when they call for support, they're going to go through like a special support line. And then when you're not doing that, you take peripherals calls. So you support like the Laser Rider 800. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. They used to have the toner fuse so hot it would catch on fire and people would wait on the support line and you'd pick up the phone. They'd be like, you'd hear somebody back, oh my God, it's on fire. And they'd be like, yes, we have a printer. It's, and you'd be like, hang up and call 911, click, right? And then you'd like notify a lawyer immediately and be like, we got another one, right? <laughs> or, or the infamous 14-inch uh, color monitor where the fuse in it was not the right fuse. So you'd get your new monitor out, you'd plug it in and you turn it on and you go, Poof, and the fuse would blow, but the green light on the front was still on. There's just no picture. And you'd be like, it's broke. And you'd call and we'd say, well, that's weird. 
I don't think I've ever seen this before. Can you, can you go through these unnecessary steps for me? Okay, you know what? We are such a great company. I love you so much. I'm going to ship you a brand new one. What I want you to do is just put that one in the box that came in. The UPS guy is going to wait at your door. He's just going to take that piece of junk away. I don't know what happened. That's weird. You do like 50 of those a day. <laughs> <laughs> Apple's quality control has improved, I think, since then. Oh, there was a different time, a different, a different company. But we got this job doing this stuff, and we loved it. And we were making 14 bucks an hour with amazing benefits. Apple has always been an incredible company to work for. And, uh, you know, that's what kind of kick-started my career in tech because what happened was I ended up in this situation where um, they were like, hey, we're training, you know, we're hiring for the second floor where all the cool Unix guys were. And uh, I was like, well, those guys don't seem to do much work. They make <laughs> way more money and they have all the cool stuff, right? Like they had the AUX boxes and like all kind of amazing stuff that you had to build a, a pitch. You had to go through. So, so there was a couple of jobs. I applied for one and Sebastian got it because he was in peripherals uh, and it was in what was called the direct response center. And uh, Sebastian was a super Unix God and Pearl master and all this stuff. And he basically, you know, I went in an interview and I was like, I really love working at Apple and I'd love to do stuff. And Sebastian was like, yeah, I just like hacked in the system and all this is wrong and I've already fixed all the stuff you're hiring somebody for. So you should just hire me anyway and I'll just not work and just pay me for the work I've already done or whatever. And they were like, wow, this guy's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I just don't even, I don't even think they, they're just like, eh, Sebastian got the job. And I was just like, oh, I hate him. Um, but he was arguably extremely better than probably. And at that time, had you, aside from your video audio sync hack thing, had you been like a tinkerer with software and scripting I, I and things? I tinkered a little here and there. Um, you know, I took a computer class in sixth grade at Lamar Middle School. Uh, and Professor Scott, God bless his soul, because I'm not trying to slam the guy, because uh, I went back to tell him uh, years later, what my career was and uh, he, he was dead unfortunately um, and that's probably better because I don't think that I was going back for the right reasons but he had a parent-teacher counsel with my parents and he said uh, in the future even a cash register at McDonald's will be a computer oh he was pause for dramatic effect he was spot your, on your son will not be able to get a job at McDonald's um, <laughs> because all I did was fuck around with these things and I wasn't doing the lessons the way they're supposed to be done. Um, and uh, I've been watching your son at school and I've concluded he's unemployable. Yeah. So take out some more insurance policies now. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so, uh, so I had done that. And then my dad, um, you know, who's amazing, used to, you know, he's really big into guns and stuff. He had wanted to foster this, even though Dr. Scott didn't. And he had at, at times like, you know, there were we lived in kind of a very military friendly area, and there was a lot of military people. He'd somebody'd have like a Commodore 64 or something, he'd like trade him a gun and be like, Well, I'll trade you this gun for it or whatever. And he'd be like, Well, here's a computer, you can do more of that, whatever you're not doing with it. But I hadn't done anything of any importance. Um, not until I met Graham, and really, so you know, Graham had an Apple IIe and he was really into it, and he was really into I mean, he was really proficient at it. And then I was like, oh, there's so much more I could do. I'm kind of wasting this, right? Uh, but getting to Apple, you know, um, there was this job and training available. 
Uh, and I was like, well, that's on the second floor and that's pretty cool too. Um, and I went and I was applying for it and they said, okay, you're one of the final candidates. So now what we want you guys to do is build a training program. Like we want you to pick a product and build a training around it. And then you're going to deliver that training to the actual trainers. Uh, and we're going to rate you on it. And then that's, who's going to get the job. It's whoever does the best, the best project. And in doing the training program, I had went up to the second floor and I'd seen this book of CDs and I went to get it to, to go through all the products. I was going to find an obscure product and I was looking at this book of CDs. There's 48 CDs maybe in here. It was called the support tools and information library. And it was what they sent to the Mac dealers because way back when for all the youngsters listening, there used to be no Apple stores and Apple had like CTW and all these like weird yeah, micro center, micro center and, and everybody yeah. sold these Macs. It was what they sent to them, and that was when you took your computer and they would put that CD in. It would tell them step by step how they could fix whatever was wrong with the computer. It was all done locally. And so I uh, I was like looking at these CDs and I was like, wait a second, how you know, like how much do they send these out? It's like, well, they send a new one out every quarter. So they're updating these. And, and they don't send all the CDs out, but this, you know, like there's 10 updates, right? So you've got a new printer and you got a this and you got a that. And I thought, oh, I've got the best idea. So everybody went in and they pitched a product. And I went in and I said, I don't have a product to educate you on. I found a problem. I pulled the Sebastian. I was like, I found a problem, something you guys are idiots and I'm a genius and I've fixed it. I basically just copied what he did <laughs> with his because it seemed to work so well. And I was like, you see this binder of CDs? And I just like, Boom, slammed it down as like, I've replaced them all with this one CD through the magic of this thing called the internet. So I wrote an X object in Macromind Director that would download from an FTP server all the content from the CDs and then present it so that all that was on the CD was a cool interface and then an index of uh, it would literally read a file off the internet that was an index to where all the content was and then presented in a menu. This package is maybe ends up being like 100 CDs a year that you're sending out to all these places. You just send them one CD and that's it, right? So the shipping cost, the burning cost, the mastering, yep. the keeping up. And so, I mean, it was like, boom, I got the job. And I also got made head of what was called Apple's Worldwide Internet Training Program. <laughs> and I, and I, I had this amazing Carolyn Schaefer, my, my first real boss at Apple. And I was like, I don't really know what that means. And she, very, she said, well, I think that's your first job is you're kind of making this area. So get to figuring that out. <laughs> well, and it's, it's funny. Cause when I think about, so you're a little older than me, but you know, I was going, uh, we both kind of grew up right at this, this transition point. Oh yeah. Remember, remember Netscape. And you know, Mozilla and the first, the little dragon is there. And you're like, there's an image in it now. Yeah. Well, and I remember uh, there was a time when, you know, young, younger people under 40 might not remember this or, or even be aware of this. When Microsoft thoroughly believed that the future of computing was CD-ROM. Mm -hmm. That was what it was going to be. And I think they had bought like an encyclopedia company. Yes. And... And, you know, and they were and, and Bill Gates got dinged for essentially, quote, missing the Internet because they were like, no, we're, it's so fast to ship all these bits in a truck on plastic. Yeah. 
this internet thing is slow compared to shipping bits in a truck with on plastic. Well, discs. it was, and and it was true, but it was just like the the extent to which that live interconnectedness wasn't even getting caught by everybody. So if was, you look at my entrepreneurial career, it has been based on learning from that one lesson at Apple, right? Like I'm really like a one trick pony. That really so was really, the prototype. It's just a really good trick, right? Which is like, think of what I'm doing now with quantum computing. Right now people are like, yeah, but there's there's only like 20 bits there. I mean, it's the same thing as him saying shipping bits on a truck is so fast because this thing's so slow. People are like, yeah, there's 20 bits and like my phone has 3 billion in it. You know, and it's like, yeah, for now. And then there's a paradigm shift and everything changes. So before we move on to the next step, I want to linger on something. You grew, you did not grow up with means. Correct. Tell me a little bit about, because we're going to get into all of your incredible, we've already gotten a preview of, of how far you've come. And uh, I think, you know, especially in 2019, where, where, you know, Howard Schultz is being railed against as a billionaire, even though he grew up in the projects. Uh, give me your, give, give me your um, up from the, up from the, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> fuck that guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, where did you, what was what was life like for you growing up? I mean, when when you f- first got started, your yeah, dad's in the military. Yeah, grew up on military bases. I mean, look, it's it's a real simple story. A lot of military families uh, are poor, right? They get some free housing and they get some stuff, and these people go out and they do this incredible job that is underappreciated because it's always the one bad story or it's uh, something about like, well, we don't like war. And it's like, well, you know, for a lot of these people, there's uh, there's not a lot of career choice. For some of them, they just a love for defending their country. It's just the way they're raised, right? There's all of these things are different. It's like, you know, it's that whole thing about like, you know, before we're too critical of politicians or people in the military or people who do film or people who are liberal or whatever. It's like maybe go spend like a month living in their, their life in their shoes or whatever and, and, and then, you know, come back at it because it's so easy, especially in today with, you know, all the social media and everything to just be like, I saw a tweet that was bad about so-and-so retweet. He's click. Hitler. I, right, exactly. You know, and <laughs> Therefore it's like, Hitler. Right. It's like, it's like just, you know, everybody calm the fuck down. But, um, my dad went to work uh, when he got out of the military. He was uh, in for 21 years. He was a Green Beret. Uh, he's in the 101st Airborne. He's a Ranger. And he, there's not a lot of career options for somebody like that when you come out, right? He has two marketable skills, right? Killing someone or killing lots of someone, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, it's really one it's, and a half skills. It's not like in the it. Air Force. You know, there's people and, and, you know, they make it to a certain rank or whatever. And it's like, oh, and they also they went to West Point and they did this thing and there's all the strategy. It's like, you know, and that's not saying that great people don't come out of the army. It's just like in 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 that enlisted life and that, you know, kind of what, you know, he was a first sergeant was the highest rank that he made. And that was where he was happy. Right. Um, there's not a lot of options. And so getting out, there were there were not a lot of great options. And um, he got a job in the restaurant business, and some people came in uh, and um, tried to rob the restaurant, and he took care of it. <laughs> the restaurant fired him. They're like, we have insurance. We don't do that. We, we you know, you give them the money, and, and they leave, right? And this, he doesn't comprehend there's a very binary right and wrong with, with my dad, right? 
And when it's wrong, well, you just take care of it, right? So um, he ran for county commissioner. Um, unfortunately, was not successful in that. I mean, he definitely tried a, a whole bunch of stuff. But also, we're living in this house that my grandfather had built these two houses and gave one to my mom and one to my aunt. And if it weren't for that, you know, I don't know where we'd have been, but it was just there weren't a lot of, of options. Um, and this is where, you know, people are like, oh, there's no middle class today. There wasn't a middle class back then. There really wasn't. I mean, there was like you either were there was what they used to call upper middle class. It's like, well, that was like really the only middle class. And then it was like there were, you know, you were poor. Right. And um, my mom worked at a jewelry store and she worked at a nursing place, uh, you know, which is, a you know, hourly jobs. And they did what they they did to do everything they could for us. And we turned out, you know, OK, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but the main thing is my dad really taught me a lot about working and hard work, right? And the American dream. And it's like I always hear people complain about all manner of things. And I I hate hearing it. It's just I have a visceral reaction to it because it's like, well, wait a second. Okay, so I've got – I'm white, so I got the white privilege thing or whatever. Sure, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. I mean I went – got beat up in – sixth grade because I went to primarily black and Hispanic school. I was the only white guy, right? And I, I got beat up in a PE class and went home crying, you know, and of course my dad has no sympathy. He's like, well, and somebody does that, you take the leader, right? You take them out. <laughs> then oh, nobody messes with you or whatever, right? So it was, like, was like, let me teach you it was military great. slash prison It was rules. great. Yeah, it was great. Great support. <laughs> it's like school is like a prison, so I'm going to start you right pretty with much, you. Pretty, pretty much. But the thing is, is like, so, okay, so let's say that I have some advantage because of race or I'm male and I'm not a female or whatever. Let's, let's just assume. So, okay, there's some baseline advantage. I'm still starting from no parents sending me to fancy school, no grades. I got a chance to go to a magnet school um, because my aunt was a school teacher and she got me tested. Um, and I wasn't able to go for a variety of reasons, one of which being the cost. And if I'd have went to that school, I probably would have gotten a scholarship. I probably a whole bunch of stuff could have been very different, but it wasn't. Um, so to me, and the way I was brought up, when I got that job at Apple, making fourteen bucks at a job I was probably never gonna get fired for, right? These great benefits, and there was a path or whatever was like that was it, right? That was amazing. Um, and you know, entrepreneurs all the time. I talk to them, and they're the entrepreneur thing just really bugs me because Inc. Magazine is a romance novel for startup nerds, and and, it, and it's all fake. I know some of the people I've seen. Some of the people on the cover, I've known them and met them, and it's like you read the story. You're like, wow, that is not the story they told me at all or whatever, and it's marketing, and that's great. But the thing is, we nobody doing entrepreneurship knows shit about what they're fucking talking about like any of these guys and gals that are like you gotta hustle and the super 10x mega and the and you go on linkedin and everybody's got a you know they're a you know visionary leader influencer whatever whatever that that right. just means unemployed right <laughs> like, they're just unemployed i mean i told that to somebody who had a meeting there they're like i mean with this guy he is a like visionary influencer, he's a board member, an advisor, and a and, and a and a 
funding capitalist or something. And I was like, that person has no job. And they're like, oh man, you're so harsh on people. Like I'm meeting him for coffee or whatever. Uh, you know, my friend Donald, he came in later and he goes, he goes, well, you nailed that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> he was asking me, what do you got going? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but the, the, the point to kind of tie that kind of ramble together is like, yeah, I grew up without means and who gives a shit? Hard work, even today, still can't be beat. It just can't be. And especially today, I used to take and cut out of cereal boxes UPC codes, save them, put them in an envelope with a form, ride my bike, you know, 15 blocks or so over to the post office and drop it, you know, a letter that's a device for the youngsters. It was like a paper you could put other paper in and seal it. <laughs> And put a stamp on it, which was, uh, you know, and send it off, a physical mail. And six weeks, 12 weeks, 18 weeks later, some piece of electronic magic would show up at my house. Hopefully not damaged by the U.S. Postal Service shoving it through the mail slot in our front door, right? And kids today, they go on Amazon. First of all, they can go on the internet and get a credit card like the moment they're available, and they like boom, they're they're funded. They get like five thousand dollars in credit. Go on Amazon, get an Arduino, a laptop, a soldering gun, all this stuff, and half that shit can be primed in two hours. So it's like I I have no sympathy for entrepreneurs today. For people who are like, I have an idea, I don't know what to do. Really, you live in the greatest time to be alive in the history of entrepreneurship. Apple will fund your company for like 29 bucks a month. They'll give you a laptop. You're doing a software company, go to Apple. They'll give you a laptop. And the internet and all the open source and all the everything. And it's like, I have no sympathy for it. And so it's like, yeah, um, you know, growing up like that taught me the value of hard work. Hard work, turns out, is now the advantage I have because people don't work hard. I mean, I interview people all the time who are like, and I'm not trying to bash millennials. There are some great millennials, and they they maybe, you know, I, there was this great Saturday Night Live skit a couple weeks ago uh, that was like uh, Millennial Millions. So it was a game show, and the, the girl's like, oh, I just really plan. I'm hoping to get those health benefits. And all. he's like, oh, man, it's tough working at a startup. What's the name of your company? And she's like, uh, Google, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and the other kid was like, oh, I have a degree from, you know, this great college. I have all this stuff. I'm interning at Burger King. And he's like the corporate office. And he's like, uh, no. <laughs> and, uh, and they were playing this game where they hit it and they, they get stuff, but they, to win the game, they had to get past, uh, um, a baby boomer. Right. So the people born at the right time were, America was great and everything was awesome and they just got everything handed to them, you know, it's, the, it's kind of the way they had positioned it. And uh, so they, you know, they're like, all right, all you, you know, you just won social security and they're like, oh, free money when I die, you know, when I'm, when I'm old. And, and they're like, not if a boomer wants it <laughs> and you got to face the parrot boomer, you know, and she comes out and she's like, she was a banker for 30 years and retired and all this. And all you have to do is listen to her for 30 seconds. They're like, that sounds easy. It's like, Oh, but I know all you millennials, you know, they get all this shit. But the point is I do talk to all these young people and there's two problems. And when I say young people, I say people under 40 are young. Okay. And there's two, <laughs> two problems. Number one, they're reading all this shit online and they're going to these stupid fucking events and podcasts and listen to all this bullshit about being an entrepreneur. All right. And it's all such bullshit about this hustle, hustle hard and do this and all of this other crap and and they're like well i heard insert famous podcaster here say 
you just got a blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, did that person ever do that? No. So why are you listening to them? Right. And they're like, well, they interviewed other person who did that. Right. Is that how they made? Me? No. OK. Why? What? How can you not correlate like the simplest of things? Right. And, and the second problem is they, they, you know, the unicorn, the billion dollar company is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. A billion dollar company. Who cares? Apple has $245 billion in cash on hand. IBM will make $100 billion plus this year. Goldman Sachs will make maybe $40 billion this year. Who? Wh why is a billion dollar company such a big deal? Because somebody randomly picked it out and said a billion dollars. Well, we like even numbers. Well, well, apparently even small numbers, right? Nobody even knows how big, you know. Uh, these, That's, this these, is a these, classic uh, the, the, tech tech universe sense of small for for for, for a lot of people no, a billion no, is enormous no, no but no but but it's not that's the problem the problem is is we don't teach people basic things like math right like jeff bezos is going through a divorce and they're like his wife's gonna get 66 billion dollars it's like no she's not he doesn't have 66 billion dollars to give her it's not how market caps work Right? That's not how the stock market works. That's not how any of this works. So we have these entrepreneurs going out trying to start these businesses based on these fantasies of I'm going to build a billion dollar company, which mathematically I can prove to you they're not almost right off the bat. And, you know, all of this fantasy about money and e economics and how it works. And it doesn't work that way at all when they could all be going and building a 20 million dollar company or 40 million dollar company that they own all of and selling it and be incredibly happy. They can make five hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, they can make a million bucks after tax, buy a place for two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars almost anywhere that they're living. OK, except for California. But, you know, that's completely fucked. But outside of there. Right. And, and then they could take the other five hundred thousand. Like, I'm going to pay myself one hundred thousand dollars a year for five years. I'm going to do nothing. Right. This is the thing about entrepreneurship. They shouldn't be working to change the world. That's a bunch of bullshit. They shouldn't be working for money. That's a bunch of bullshit. They should be working to get the one thing none of us can get more of. Time, right? Freedom of our time. They should be working for freedom, right? They should work for freedom, and they can do everything. You know, I was mentoring this kid earlier, and he's like, well, Richard Branson, I think, is really taking a liking to Wells or whatever bullshit, and he's going to go save Wells. It's like, Richard Branson is fucking awesome. I love that guy. But you also realize he has access to billions of dollars. If Richard Branson decides... I want to save the endangered whatever the fuck. I've decided I'm taking the next three years off to do it. Nobody's going to say shit, and a bunch of people just shower money at his cause. You're not Richard Branson, you know? Like, Well, I think there's this feeling that, you know, it's sort of un it's sort of the same thing as asking somebody who gets out of school, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to work at a nonprofit. It's like, okay, well, nonprofit is a tax designation. Yeah, there's no such thing. So... uh what do you want to do? Because there's nonprofits that work in all kinds of actual industries and providing particular kinds of services, whether it's healthcare, or education, or whatever. But it 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 is this uh, wanting to be part of something meaningful, but not under not necessarily having a sense of what it means to be meaningful, and so. You're uh, kind of chasing not, like a ghost not, in that it's way. It's not. I don't. I don't think it is. See, you don't I, think I that's. Think you don't need, think that's what's driving that no, sense. No, I think. I think what we need in the world is some honesty. They're not looking for something meaningful there's themselves. When I break these people down and I talk to hundreds of them and I really break them down, what they're looking for is something other people will look at and say that person is awesome, and they're 
they're looking for fame or they're looking for money or they're looking for people to look up or they can have a billion Instagrams or likes or whatever. I have met out of thousands of people, maybe 50 that honestly just like they're like Mother Teresa going to do some good. The majority of people I hear that from to start off, it's complete bullshit. It's like, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do this thing. Well, why? Well, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, that's great. And then you start giving, like, that's awesome. This is how it would work, and this is what it's looked like. Oh, well, that doesn't look good at all. <laughs> right, but you're dedicated to this cause, right? So, I mean, should it matter what it looks like? Well, yeah. I mean, because I somehow thought also while I'm doing the good, I would make billions of dollars. I'd be like Richard Branson, and then I'd be like, you know, just doing cool stuff all the time. It's like, yeah, well, those are... Those are very different. And and my point isn't that you shouldn't do good in the world or that you shouldn't want to make money. My point is that there is only one thing we can't generate more of, and that is time. And so if you look at your resources and you look at what you have, you should be working to get more of the time in your control for which you can use, apply it to whatever you want. And then you can do all of these wonderful things, right? If you, if you like, I contribute to a lot of different charities. My wife and I don't say who they are for the most part. There's a couple that come out every once in a while. We do different things because it's nobody's fucking business because I'm not doing it to get fucking Instagram followers or people love me on Facebook or whatever, right? Um, I like causes with kids. I like things that are programs for kids. Foster kids are real big for my wife and I right now, right? She's super in that because foster care system is just fucking shit, right? Um, animals cool. You know, there's a bunch of different stuff. That's about all I care to say about it. But the point is, I had this guy this week that I was talking to say, well, you do these things, I know, because my dad said you're a big contributor, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but I can be. Like, you don't understand. Like, we're in two completely different worlds. I sold a company to Accenture, and I sold them to Zynga, and I sold them to Goldman Sachs. I've invested in 14 others. It's all like, like, yeah, it's very, yes, I can do that. I can, I can be like, yes, I would, all of a sudden, I want to write a check to something. Being an entrepreneur is like being a passenger on an airplane. You have to know where all of the exits are, right? You, you, you're, you're restricted by all of these factors, you're in this tiny space and you don't have a lot of stuff and you have limited amounts of this and that. And and when it comes to the oxygen, if you have to use it, you have to put your mask on first and then you can help other people around you. And there are so many young people wasting their lives not establishing a base for themselves first before they go help with their hearts in the right place. And I mean, God bless them for giving a shit about the world because Lord knows a lot of people my age didn't right um and they're not going to make any progress because they don't understand that there's a there's a mechanism a mechanics to it of getting yourself in a position where you're stable enough to actually help somebody else it, it's kind of like loving yourself right you can't love somebody else in a relationship unless you love yourself it's like well you can't go out and help change the world unless you've doing it from some solid base because it's really fucking hard so let's go back to how you came to be in that position, right? So you are at Apple. Robbed you... a bank. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Is that the first time that came out in the interview? You took a, a detour down a road of extreme crime. <laughs> right. And then that gave you Never an economic foundation. Now, right. Um, the IRS but, is already looking into that. The your... AI has already <laughs> identified it. We're all, we're all, you know, we're, we all commit three crimes a day in the, in the federal register. So we're just, all just got, just got flagged. Um, but so I got this little bit of entrepreneurial 
activity forced working at Apple, but you're, you know, you're getting paid a wage. You're working at Apple. What, to, how do you to, start to then $14 an hour to about 90,000 a year? I go from 90,000 a year to a little over a hundred thousand in R and D. And I'm just like, and every time I'm like, I'm done. I've made it. This is the best it'll ever get. So what's the, what's the next, what's that entrepreneurial leap? The first, your first truly like entrepreneurial leap. I'm going to start something from scratch. I leave IBM in 1991. I don't start something, but I join a couple of other guys to start a company uh, in ni- at late 1999, right at 2000. Right. Great timing. Brilliant timing. And one of the guys, still a friend of this day, cool dude, other guy had no idea what the fuck he was doing. Embezzled some money from the company. Other guy, you know, almost kills a guy, you know, just like fucking horrible disaster. Um, that led to me moving to Vegas for a short time to break into casinos for a living, doing penetration testing because you fall back on whatever you know you can do. Um, At this point, I take it your hacking skills have got, have been kicked up a notch. Yeah, it's several <laughs> notches, right? So yes. it's like, hey, I can legally get paid for that, and um, you've skipped over being I, a. Um, and what, then I, what were you at IBM? You were a master inventor, I was a principal engineer, and a and a master inventor, and then I was a manager in the internet business unit, and then uh, and then I basically um, so the way I got involved with that company was I was dating one of the guy's sisters. That's how I found out about this entrepreneurial activity. Um, and I, uh, she moved to Vegas. Um, I don't think she had the intention of me coming out to Vegas, but then <laughs> I, she kind of used me to get out there to give her some support while she figured out her, her stuff. And I, uh, uh, woke up one day and I realized it and I was like, I'm out of here. And I went literally was like, she woke up and she's like, what's going on? It's like, in about five minutes, a cab's going to pick me up and I'm never going to speak to you again. So if you have anything to say, now be a really good time. <laughs> and she's like, what, what? And then it was like, beep, beep. And I was like, took my stuff and I went to the cab and I drove to the airport. And from the airport, I called Mike Irwin, who's my longtime friend and current, you know, investment partner at, at our new fund, Ecliptic Capital. And I was like, um, Hey, uh, I'm leaving Nancy. I'm coming back to Austin. That's where I belong. And, uh, he was pretty much like, I never fucking like that bitch anyway. <laughs> I'll pick you up at the airport. And he did. And, uh, and, and he said, I've got this security company that I'm working on and you should join it. So it was the second startup I kind of joined. He gives me founder credit, but I mean, in all honesty, I really didn't deserve it. Right. I, I, I was, you were like employee number one with, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. I was with, like super stakes in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that company was super cool except for not popular with government entities, including ours. So we'll leave it there. <laughs> that company goes away. Uh, it did, um, it detailed all the attackers uh, on the internet and where they were, and the largest two attackers were the U.S. and Chinese government. Shock. Right, right. So just just to make sure everybody understands that. So you're, so so Mike's got a company that's identifying who's doing malicious things on online in, right. Is what is this? Two thousand, two thousand and one. This is two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, so yeah. yeah, 
and, and, it was and lo and behold, the, the federal and, government is the biggest would, hacker well, screwing I mean, around with people. I mean, they, you know, I mean, we know. We, this I say has that, now become kind that, of public I knowledge. I say that kind of as a joke, but but what happened was... he was mini, he was mini. You were engaged in a kind of mini Snowden uh, event. No, not, <laughs> nothing like... I mean, we, didn't, we, didn't, we just built some really cool software that um, other people liked, and they, they took it. So, <laughs> ta-da! Um, <laughs> second bad entrepreneurial experience learned a ton learned a whole ton so at this point you've been you know you it's you know you've now spent years in a certain sense failing joining joining things that don't pan out no i i don't i don't say that and not because i'm afraid of because i have plenty of failures but because no i i had this great job at apple and this great job at ibm i left eh, made a mistake then i was doing this contracting stuff which is kind of fun then I joined Mike. So you're really talking about 2000 to 2004 were kind of four years of joining a couple of things and they didn't work out. The companies failed. Yeah, It's really important to distinguish this. And entrepreneurs, I tell them this all the time. What failed? Well, I failed. Well, wait, did you fail? Like what, where were you when you began that journey and where were you when you ended that journey? And what was your goal? If your goal was to get millions of dollars and you didn't, then yeah, you failed. My goal in joining the first company and my goal in joining Mike were similar but a little different. My goal in joining the first company was to A, get out of IBM, right? And B, to like dip my toe in the startup waters. And I was like, whoa, there's like sharks and piranhas and stuff in those waters. And that was, and it was useful. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my car. I didn't have any tragedy happen. Um, it wasn't a failure for me. It, was it a black mark on my career? Not really. I mean, I didn't create the whole, you know, I mean, sure, maybe. Who cares, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have to, to. This is the problem everybody's afraid of. They're so afraid of failure uh, or looking like a failure or saying it didn't work out that they're never going to go do anything, right? Like you have to go to, like the person you watch doing the sport or the thing or those BMX guys that do all this crazy stuff, it's like, yeah, they break a lot of bones and they practice a lot and they definitely have not pulled that trick off every time, right? And being an entrepreneur is exactly the same way, right? So, so, but for me, it was like, I had a very definite plan when I left IBM, get out of IBM. <laughs> so <laughs> huge success and be able to pay the bills. That all worked out great. Okay, um, but you you got to see at some level that you could you could survive. You could as a person. It's like you're. This is like well, your no, lesson, I right? Got, you if, survive as a person, even if these ventures don't. No, but survive. I learned. But okay, so failure is supposed to bring lessons or whatever. However, you want to position it. I learned the most valuable lesson ever. I learned the Mike Irwin valuation metric, which is CEO is basically gonna go to fucking jail or whatever for a money. CEO slash girlfriend's brother is like fuck this I'm out you know totally understandable he's leaving investors are like you're the CEO right I mean you worked at IBM and you did a management close enough I'm like what <laughs> so now I'm running the thing and my job is to try to get some value out of so I mean I have no idea what I'm doing right and I call Mike and I say, I know what I'm doing. I need your help. And Mike comes over and stands at the whiteboard and he helps me figure out what the company's worth. And he goes, 
all right, so this furniture and stuff, did you buy that or did you lease it? And did you this? And he's like, your company's worth like $147,000, 364 cents. And I was just like, what the fuck? And uh, I was like, whoa. And uh, I was like, yeah. And it, there, there were some, there were a bunch of good lessons there. So, so 2000, 2004 was like not the bad part. 2004 to 2005, 2006 was the bad part. And that was where when the company, Mike and I, I was so dedicated to the company. I did something entrepreneurs should never do, which is I fell in love. And with the company, when I couldn't afford a house because I lost mine, we I moved in with Mike and Jamie. And then I was in my car, and then my car payments were behind. And you know, we weren't making any money, but it's like I was just like religiously devout to this cause of what we were doing. And by the way, still think it was one of the greatest things I ever got to work on, and I love it to death. But you can't drink your own Kool-Aid and you, you can't, you still have to put yourself first before this thing that you've created, right? It, it can't be Frankenstein, you know what I mean? And that was a, that was where I really failed. And, and it's not failing as a company, failing as an idea. These things don't bother me. Failing myself, that's what I did. And that bothers me to this day because I lost the house I was living in. I took my car back to Chase Bank to be repossessed because every day the guy would drive through the parking lot at our company, the repo guy, looking for the car, and he wouldn't find it because every morning I go over to the Lowe's that was like a quarter mile away, and Mike would pick me up at the Lowe's, and I'd leave my car in the Lowe's parking lot all day, and I'd come to work, right? Um, and uh, it should have it never got to that point that I was willing to give up so much for this idea, for this concept. Is that really your, it, 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 your advice though? Isn't, isn't that, I mean, for, for some people that, I mean, I understand like you're looking back and in it, retrospect, it really, it, no, it really you, is. I'll, I'll, you sacrificed yourself. It, it really is. But why is that? Isn't, isn't that often what, what it takes to get something to work? I mean, the, if I remember correctly, the story of the guy from FedEx, like he couldn't yeah, get it to work no. and he had to take a loan out to He's, oh, all of that, all of that and, you'll All of that you'll have to do to a point. There's a difference between commitment and sacrifice. What he did is commitment. There's calculated risk. What I did was blind sacrifice to a goal. It wasn't even a question. I didn't even think about paying the car payments. I even think about doing anything. It's like an addiction, right? That's the 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 what I'm advising against. And it was the only time it's happened in my career. And I still, you know, if you ask me what I do it again, I love the I still love the idea. I still love, right? I mean, it's it's like that one girlfriend or boyfriend or significant other you had that you're just like you're never going to be able to let go of that. That that's the one that that got away. But yeah, it takes it takes it, it doesn't, you know, you sacrifice things to an extent as an entrepreneur, time with your family, uh, not going on vacations, not having, you know, you, Ooh, I got to take out a loan. I got to do this. I got to do that. But these things have to be calculated, but to have blinders on, to lose objectivity, to lose perspective, 
that is super dangerous. And I see tons of people that do it. And I know it because I did it. And I can see it every time I talk to an entrepreneur, I can see it in their eyes. No matter what I tell them, no matter what happens, there is no way they are not going to do the crazy thing they just said they're going to do. And you're just like, right, but I'm looking at it from the outside and you're actually standing on the edge of a building and it looks like you're literally about to step off of the Empire State Building and fall to your death. And they're like, when I step off here, I'm going to fly magically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that Although some people, they're right. Almost never. That's the illusion is we, we, we tell these entrepreneurial myths. We create these myths of the entrepreneur that make you think that sometimes it works out that way. And it doesn't. If you actually objectively look at the stories where there's sacrifice and commitment and success and all these things we're talking about, they're different, they're different stories. And this is where I came up with the data, not drama principle, right? How I run startups. So, so explain, lay that out. Explain. So, 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 so it's really simple. I took everything I learned through that time. I went to work for this startup in 2006. You know, I told that story earlier how Tom Bishop and Brian Bailendorf recommended me for this job, and I was lucky. And they recommended me because they both knew I was just like borderline unemployable. Like this government thing and everything just wrecked, that wrecked my career, that blind ambition, right? And uh, I jumped on this job, and I, I knew it would lead to a job at BMC probably, and it did. I went on, joined the management team at BMC, and I took my career. It was as if those four years were never a blip. It wasn't like I got reset and I had to build myself back up. It was like I magically somehow came out on the other side of those with all of these lessons and everything, but in an incredibly different spot and incredibly different position. Um, and I'm super lucky for that having happened. But I wanted to learn something from it. And so when I was at BMC is when I started. What is BMC? Like so, so you so you it's BMC so you're coming out of this, one of the big system management companies. What used to be the big three, Computer Associates, Tivoli, BMC. These are kind of the big three system management companies. And what what does that mean? Like what is what like for somebody they, who doesn't they know they write tech. the software that runs most of the stuff that you use every day that you never see. The systems that manage everything from the stuff the ATMs use to the stuff the banks use to the, all the boring inventory software all and this background kind of okay. and everything, right? So they're like a big kind of back office infrastructure company. They do, they do a couple billion a year, um, I think, or they, or they were at the time. And, and you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good gig. Great company. And Bob Beecham, who was CEO when I joined, is still a good friend. He's actually, you know, one of the individuals I let invest in Strangeworks, right? So many great things came out of that thing. And I got to work with Tom Bishop again. I worked with him at Tivoli. Um, uh, I, I uh, worked for him at BMC. He worked for me at Honest Dollar. Like we've had this great, like kind of weird mix of career. So, so it was a great thing. But the, but the thing that came out of it, the thing that's in, like the most important to note is, I started paying attention to, to these different lessons, combination of things that gleaned from mentors, which I've been very lucky to have, to have a lot of older, wiser mentors, things I'd picked up, things I'd learned in that four years. I started kind of noting them down. And started saying, I really like the idea of being my own boss. But I realize I'm not ready. That doesn't mean you can't be a 20-year-old entrepreneur or whatever. It's not an age thing. It's just I knew I wasn't ready. So what time is it? What, what year is this? This is 2006 
or so, 2006, 2007, I go to work at, at BMC. 2006, I think. And I took the time to realize that we're all meant to do something better than everybody else. This is what comes back to the sacrifice thing. So the first lesson is there's something that you are inherently better at than 90% of the population. And if you find that thing, it may not be the thing you're passionate about or you love, but man, you can make a living and just coast. And for me, that thing was building these open source software communities and doing the presentations and the speaking and doing the stuff. And I don't really like doing that. I still don't like doing it. I do tons of it all the time, but just comes so naturally. And I turned it into a career that was like, I was making tons of money at BMC, providing tons of value. They loved it. I love them. They love me. But actual stress, actual output, actual work, it was pretty minimal. It was the most leverage I could get out of a job. So break that, dig into that just a little bit more. Like, what were you doing? Like, what, so is, this, chief, what is this thing that you were really good at? I was the architect of their open source strategy. And so that meant going out in the open source communities, building communities, identifying very obscure ideas of what we could take and maybe make open source and how we could leverage that back internally, how we could take other things and support the community to do things. And it was... So like, for example, like theoretically, it's like, hey, there's this new... There's a no. I'll give you an open give you, source. Yeah, give me like a tangible a example. Idea. Yeah, I'll give you a great idea. You, say you have a piece of, and this isn't necessarily a BMC example. This is just like a, a a generic example. Say that you're a large company. You have a lot of different software products, a lot of different software SKUs. So you got a list of software you sell, and there's a whole bunch of them. Some of that software is going to be end of life, right? But there's customers out there that really depend on that. So why couldn't you take that software? And I did this in a couple different jobs give it to the customers and say, I'm going to make it open source so you can contribute to it. So now they're supporting it, adding features, doing stuff. If you can build it, the right community around it. So you open source it, send it out. You're now not spending the R and D. You're now not spending it. You're spending a fraction of that on just supporting this community. And instead of interlifing a product and pissing them off, you've actually kind of handed it over to them. They're super happy. The company's super happy, but now there's companies that still want to use that, but they want support. And they don't want to go on the forums at two in the morning and say, my data center just crashed because the thing didn't work. They want to pick up the bat phone. So then you could take that version of software, bless it in a blessed version, and offer a support package about it. So if you reduce the cost, you've made the community happier, you've got the, the, the infrastructure. It was like this you know, really happy circle. So doing these big kind of very strategic things and then being out evangelizing them, right? And these were kind of the two things that I was doing at that at that particular job. So your special, uh, what you found is your kind of comparative advantage to be an econ nerd was building communities, being, you know, being out in the world, sort of being an evangelist for an idea. It's really simple. I have the ability to identify opportunities other people don't see and to measure fairly accurate the timing of the opportunity and the risk of the opportunity. And then from there, I'm pretty good at executing, right? It's really those three things. It's saying quantum computing is coming not in 20 years, but in three. I have enough data I think I can show that that's real. Here's all of the risk around if it doesn't happen in three, if it doesn't whatever, and I can execute on it. And the thing I've added later in my career is I can build really good teams around me to 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 follow through on that right i mean you're just you're defining what it means to be an entrepreneur to see an opportunity to have a sense 
to have a sense, uh, an awareness of it that is not exactly. You know, I think uh, Peter Thiel has that book Zero to One, and one of, it's a neat book. And one of the things I really love in it is he says he asks the question, "What do you believe or know to be true that almost everyone else thinks is false?" Right. And it's it's kind of the same. I mean, that's well, and the, and the big, and, for you and, right I, right. and I like that book as well because I like I like basically the zero to one concept, which is like doing something that's just iterative and an incremental improvement on something else is not where the big opportunity is, right? Doing something that nobody else is doing, you know, those are where the big opportunities are. So, so, but the, but the point is, is putting together these lessons, we'll get back to the data, not drama, like you ask in just a second. But one of the lessons was understanding the difference between control and influence, right? And learning that managerials, I, I prefer to influence people rather than to control them. I don't tell people do this. I give people the opportunity and the environment in which they will do the thing that that is best for the company. Because and it may not be the thing that I think they should do, right? So there's this, this freedom. So I this kind of understanding the difference between control and influence was kind of the, the first rule that came up. The second rule that came up was understanding the difference between reaction and response, right? And the the example I like to give of this is Steve Jobs and AntennaGate, right? So, so why is reaction response important as an entrepreneur? Because somebody that works for you comes with an idea and they go, hey, I got this great thing. And everybody I see, every entrepreneur, every manager has this habit of saying, yeah, well, yeah, but we don't because they've almost instantly shot that down. They have no evidence of anything they're saying. They just emotionally just killed that idea and it could be the greatest thing for the company, and they have no, they don't know. They just like it's like a, a autonomous feature in our brains as humans to be like, right? But I've never dated someone that hot, John. Therefore, you can't, obviously, right? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like this weird taking your experience and projection, putting projecting it right onto other people. But 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 a classic example I give is Antinogate comes up, Antinogate versus Tim Cook. Chinese workers jumping to their death. So lay it out for, for those of us that aren't reading TechCrunch every day. So, so Antinogate, if you hold an iPhone, shock, your body's a big bag of water, the signal gets reduced. And people are like, the iPhone has a design flaw, the way the antenna's laid out. It's the end of the iPhone. It's the end of Apple. Clearly, and <laughs> we know now, yeah. not true. This is true. like iPhone 4. So this it's is like not true at all, right? Years ago. And they're maybe a, is it like a decade ago? I think it's almost a decade they're ago. They're railing on Apple, and Jobs doesn't say a word. He doesn't say anything. Apple doesn't make a statement. Everybody's just beating up on Apple. The stock price, CNBC's like antenna gate. You know, they come up with this every. And, and by the way, I don't know why everything has to be a gate because of Watergate. It's like this <laughs> gate, that gate, this gate, that gate, Pete's gate, antenna gate, all these gates. Those are that's a gate's a horrible way to describe some controversy yeah, it's a we should come language up, we should we should come up with nobody some nobody planned term. it that way it was just the watergate was the name of a hotel it's like people don't realize right. that it was the name of a hotel I've it wasn't stayed a, there it's with not my, a verb my, my it's not son. an adjective that's a thing right exactly it's like <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense to me but but what happened with antinogate is he waited for what seemed like forever i think it was like a couple of weeks and then he comes out on stage and he shows pictures of all these other phones doing it. He shows pictures of this $100 million plus antenna facility. He shows everything. And Steve Jobs basically comes out in a classic example of response versus reaction because one is voluntary and the other is not. Okay, reaction is a emotional 
I'm going to tell you something. I haven't even put any thought into it. Steve Jobs not only thought about it, had an entire team think about it. He gets out on stage and basically says, you know, I had to fix the entire cell phone, and now I have to fix the whole fucking infrastructure too? You idiots, right? And <laughs> one reporter, you can go on YouTube and Google, says, hey, wait a second. And Steve Jobs basically goes, and ooh, right in the head. <laughs> and everybody's like, he's genius, right? And that it was all about how he handled that in, by responding to it and not reacting. Tim Cook, who I love, okay, I've met on several occasions, a super great guy, the workers jump out, writes a letter and says, this is horrible, which it is. And then Apple says, don't worry, solution with Foxconn, ooh, nets. That's that's a reaction, not a response. And and you see, and you saw how the, the press, in one, the press reacts to Steve Jobs, greatest visionary of time. I don't know why all of you were talking about this antenna problem, right? Every reporter that wrote about it wrote an article that was like, and the press did this thing because they're idiots, right? Even though they did it too. You know, you put nets up. Your solution is we put nets on the building so Chinese workers that jump to the death will fall in the nets. People are like, that does not seem cool at all. In fact, that really concerns me and it caused a huge controversy for Apple, right? Um, because you don't always have to respond. One of the lessons I learned is no matter what decision you're making as an entrepreneur, you can sleep on it for 24 to 72 hours. And I promise you, in 72 hours, I don't care if the bank's calling on the loan or the customer's going to leave or the whatever. If you just don't think about it for 72 hours, I guarantee you that situation will look completely different. And I guarantee you, again, barring someone has a gun to your head, nothing will change in 72 hours of any, I don't care what somebody yells on the phone or sends in a letter or you read the press, just sit on it for 72 hours. And trust me, it will be completely different and you will be in a much different spot with a much clearer head and you'll make a much better decision and you will respond to what's happening instead of reacting to it. And reacting to it is what gets most entrepreneurs in trouble. When they react to an investor, they try to jump on an opportunity. A customer says, we have a problem and they react to it. They can often exacerbate the problem instead of saying, we're gonna, we're gonna look at that problem. I'm gonna need 48 hours to get back to you. And then go panic by yourself in the room in your office. Don't let anybody see it. And then go back with something prepared and the customer will appreciate that. Don't, you know, flip out, overreact, you know what I mean? Those things. So there were all these lessons. All of the, there's a well, lot. Well, we're definitely in the era of reactions. Yeah, everything's in general. reaction. There's yes. no, for 72 hours, Try you can't even get by without 72 seconds uh, without needing but, but here's to the respond, thing. react to but, whatever. But here's the thing, but you can. The, 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 the reality is you can. All of the stuff we're seeing in politics some of these people could just keep their mouth shut for a weekend and then come out. There's no need like Twitter and Facebook and all these things have bred this thing that like click, click instant response. Somehow the instant gratification has led to this instant reaction. Like I have, if I don't comment now and I want the first to get out in front of this, it's like, well, it's already out. You're not in front of it. Right. So just wait 72 hours and then say something really smart that makes everybody go, Ooh, I should have thought of that. I feel like an idiot for all the comments I threw out over the weekend. 
right? You know what I mean? But all of these different things, and there's a whole bunch of different rules led to this concept of data, not trauma. And the idea is that when I start a startup, when I run it, everybody can question every decision I make. Every employee can be like, I think you're a fucking idiot. All I ask is that they bring some empirical evidence to that conversation. They can't say, people don't like our interface. They need to say, I actually talked to and recorded interviews with these 20 people who don't like our interface. And this is what they said. I can accept that all day long. I can go out and say, um, do a presentation and they can say, they can just say like, I think that presentation sucked. They have to say, you know, I didn't think the presentation was really well, so I surveyed 50 people in the audience and 10 of them brought up these points and this is what they said and I relevance ranked them and here's how we could refactor that in the future. Like you have to have some sort of evidence, right? Because the whole point of being an entrepreneur, the whole point of what I'm saying is that you can keep, you can be more successful faster and keep yourself out of all of this bullshit stress we read about. I sleep fine at night. I sleep like a baby. Do I get enough of it? No, I overcommit on my schedule and stuff. But the point is, is like you read all these horror stories, you know, Elon Musk is sleeping on the floor at Tesla. Well, that sounds fucking dumb. Okay. <laughs> all these, all this stuff you read about that we romanticize, that we're teaching these young entrepreneurs, like, well, that's what you have to do. You have to do these horrible life decisions or else you get, it's like, it, it's the equivalent of, it's equivalent I have slept of, on the floor but it's many a, times but it's at Viacom and I, it was not entrepreneurial it but, was it, but it's the equivalent employee, but. but it's the equivalent of you being a, a rock star and us telling all all young musicians at the teenage camp now listen kids you are going to have to pick up a habit either coke or heroin and you're also going to have like a lot of unprotected sex get a disease and then you're probably gonna have to get in a car crash these are going to be prerequisites for you being successful rock star right <laughs> I mean, that's the equivalent of it, right? We're telling them all these stupid stories. The, the point is, data not drama as a concept is this concept of being objective with all things, starting with yourself. Like, I know when I fucked up, and I have no problem telling that to my team. I'm not going to lose credibility with my team. I'm going to gain it in boatloads. I mean, the lot, shortest relationship at my company right now, we just hired this amazing person, and she's great. We don't know her. So she's technically the shortest. But before her was eight years. The longest is 27. These are people who followed me forever. There are tons of relationships I have like that because being objective. And it's really hard to have the tough conversations. At Honest Dollar, when we got to Goldman, we thought that they were going to be the, the you know, oh, they're evil. They're going to be harsh and all. And, you know, um, it, uh, we used to have this joke where we we said uh, uh, at Honest Dollar, like, we have met the assholes and they are us. Because <laughs> it was like, wow, <laughs> turns out the startup got like, we were the evil, like, horrible. We were like, we're going to just own this bitch. And they were like, whoa, 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 guys, hang on. We have all of these things we think about before we do them. We're like, right, but we'll just write the code. Boom, right? You know? And I was like, that, that was eye opening experience. But but we would build this this credibility, right? And we we'd do these things by being objective. And we got this nickname, brutally honest dollar. <laughs> um, but it was but it but the reason is is because people aren't objective. Like it, it's 
great example. Right now, the first thing I do when I'm interviewing companies that are asking me for money, not at the fund, but individually, because the fund has a very specific thesis and it's not for like, you just got an idea, come ask us for money, right? Um, but I do that. I mean, I mean, you know, like there's projects, I'm like, that sounds great. I'll, I'll put money in it. So I meet these people and and the, and I, I try to start by teaching them the first lesson without it sounding like you being an asshole, which, you know, can be hard, but it's not. It's meant to really help them understand what they're about to embark on. You have this girl and this guy and this other guy. And she's a CEO and he's the CTO and he's the COO. And she was a project manager at, uh, you know, whatever design company. And he was a project manager uh, at LinkedIn, uh, who's the COO. And the CTO guy was a developer, a senior developer, maybe even a team lead at some software company. Uh, but they've now started this company and they printed CTO and co-founder on the card. And you say, well, what were you CTO of before? Well, well I wasn't. Oh, well, how, how are you the CTO? Oh, well, because yeah, I made myself CTO. Okay, well, what did you do before? Oh, well, I was a developer. Okay, well, I mean, I get that, and you can write code and stuff, but, like, wh why are you the CTO? Or you were a project manager. How does that make you a COO? Is it there? I mean, they both organize stuff. They both, But it's, like, kind of the, the difference between, like, my kid has an airplane of Delta Airlines. It's made of plastic that I bought him that he goes, flies around, pretending a house. And then there's like that new stealth Boeing thing that stays in orbit for 365 days autonomously. We don't know. They both have wings and wheels and fly. They are ridiculously different, right? I mean, the, the thing is these people, it's so easy for us as entrepreneurs to be like, I just started a company and I'm the CEO. It's like, what has prepared you for that job? other than your ego says you want to be a CEO or a CTO. And so it's like starting with this foundation of objectivity really, really helps because the reason most of these people fail is they're doing a job that they can't do, but we convince them that they can. And that doesn't mean that they can't be entrepreneurs and that doesn't mean that they can't be successful, but we give them this false construct that you go to Vistaprint, you print a card and you say you're CEO and you've never been a CEO. You've never even been a manager. But now you're a CEO, so you're managing everything, raising money. You have no idea what a CEO even does. And then somebody gives you money in a convertible note or a safe note because they read in Inc. Magazine that that's the way to invest in a startup, and then you lose that money, and then they're pissed, and they're somehow shocked that you lost that money. I would tell you they can lose that money 100% of the time. They have no idea what they're doing. I mean, I guess, I, I guess the point is in, in the world of entrepreneurship, we have completely lost objectivity by romanticizing something that's incredibly difficult that takes a lot of years of experience. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be CEO. Doesn't mean that you can't. But for God's sakes, go find yourself a couple of mentors. Because my next question for those kids is, well, who's mentoring you on being a CEO? Well, well nobody. Or one person did say very, very affirmatively, he said, oh, I read uh, Startup CEO. It's a very good book. I was like, you read that the, the whole book? And he goes, I've read it maybe three times. I keep it with me. He pulled it out. He, goes, he has stuff bookmarked and he's highlighted. 
And I was like, well, it's better than the majority of people I talk to. But, you know, I also read a book on quantum computing. <laughs> and uh, I would tell you that the physicist that works for me now would be like, yeah, not so much. So I um, I want to come back to your entrepreneurial story and we can kind of uh, take a look at this principle. Some of these because some of these principles sound a little bit like uh, you've been around you've been around the block on starting these things and and. Um, you're telling your 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 past self advice. So you so uh, before Honest Dollar, before Strange Works, there was Chaotic Moon. Yeah, but but it's not. I'll tell you why. Because I joined two things, and I knew I didn't want to be CEO. And and I, and when I started Chaotic Moon, we specifically started a company where there was no CEO. And then when I started Honest Dollar, we cut and drew straws to see who would be CEO, and I lost. And my favorite moment was when Goldman Sachs took me to this really nice dinner. We had a great evening because they were trying to butter me up because they were going to give me the bad news of like, now that we bought you, you're not going to be able to be CEO anymore. You know that, right? And I was like, <laughs> like, because I'm sorry, but my personal belief, this is not everyone's belief, is that only two people who are CEOs, narcissistic assholes and people have no idea what they're doing or haven't yet figured out that being CEO is literally the shittiest worst job where you get blamed for everything. It's all your fault. Legally, somehow you're bound to be responsible. Like it's horrible. I like the CTO title. I like some of the lower titles, but I've, I've never been a fan of, 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 of being that. Um, so it, it, that's just been experience. I just now have the experience to justify why, aha, I, it turns out I was right on that one. But so, but yeah, a lot of before before all of that, there was Chaotic Moon, right? Chaotic, so what is Chaotic Moon? How does it get started? Who's involved? 2006, Raven Zachary and I and Chris Messina and uh, Dom Segal and some guys formed the iPhone dev camps. A week after the iPhone comes out, we put 400 hackers in Adobe's offices in San Francisco to hack around on apps for the iPhone. You could still find the videos on the internet pretty easily. And this is before the App Store, right? Wait, this is yeah, when yeah. Steve Jobs said there wasn't going to be an App Store. There's no SDK, there's no apps. So we hack them, we build these web apps, we build this stuff. Really creative stuff comes out of this. Um, and, and so this is leveraging your that community building. And look, and it, I mean, it was leveraging more than that. I mean, Raven Zachary deserves, in my opinion, 100% of the credit for getting that idea off the ground, right? Uh, and other people have taken credit for it since, and we were all involved, and we all deserve credit uh, to an extent. I feel very lucky that Raven called me as one of the people to get involved, but I always say, you know, he had the original epiphany and deserves a lot of the credit, and all of the people involved had massive community building skills. And that's how, like, in such a short time, you had, like, 400 people, you know, gathered, right? But what happened is, O'Reilly was there, and they're like, we're going to do books on iPhones. We're going to do books. And everybody started an iPhone consulting company. And everybody, everybody there knew what Apple pretended not to know, but I, I think knew, which was there's going to be an app economy. Every single person that showed up. And I had watched this IBM video. It's the creepiest video you'll ever see. You should Google it. It's like IBM Linux child or something. We'll find it. And it's got this little boy sitting in a room. <laughs> and you hear this man's voice. 
and they're and this woman's voice and they're talking about this little boy and the little boy is Linux. Okay. It's really creepy. And the, the, one of them's like, what is he doing? And the other one's like learning. It's like, what is he learning? Like everything or whatever. It was like really, really, really creepy. And, uh, it's got all these famous people like Muhammad Ali, all these people like talking to this little boy, teaching him things. Right. And it's basically like the little boy is like what would become Watson or whatever. But in there, I forget the actress's name, but she's one of the shortcuts. And she tells the little boy, timing is everything. Basically, nothing else matters. And for some reason, sitting in Adobe's offices, seeing Raven start a company before my eyes, and Chris and everybody, like everybody starting a company, and getting in that fury, and thinking about kind of the old bull versus the young bull, and all these different lessons that are swirling around in my head, and knowing I want to be an entrepreneur, and most importantly, knowing myself, I decide to bow out of the book project, which I was shooed in for, to not start the blog, and to not join any iPhone company or to start one. But instead, to stay at BMC, stay associated with the camp for a couple of years, and wait. Because that scene in that, com that little clip timing is everything popped into my head it was an epiphany for me I was like when I joined that startup in 2000 how much of what made it go wrong was the fact that everything crashed the month after it got going or how much of the bullshit could have been corrected if it hadn't have crashed right um, how much of it would have been better if I would have had waited two years taking a big some big bonuses at IBM and had a nest day right so what 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 timing what did timing play in that and then I thought about what Mike and I did because we proposed countermeasures on the internet and everybody was super up in arms and now it's 2019 and people are like you know there might need to be some repercussive effect on the other side before all this cybercrime starts and we have white papers you can go Google on the rules of information warfare from 2004. So was that a company a bad idea or was it an idea at the wrong time, right? right? So thinking about this, I went and I talked to a mentor of mine and I said, everybody's starting an app company. And I really feel, I mean, I see this app economy thing coming and I really want to do this. I, but I just feel like maybe I'm not ready, like the timing thing. And I, I show him this commercial. He goes, oh, that's that's just the creepiest thing I've ever seen. It's super creepy. You have to go watch it. <laughs> and uh, and, then, and then he says to me, he goes, he goes, well, you've really learned a lesson I tried to teach you, which is like know yourself what your limitations are. And the timing is everything. He's like, I totally agree. Timing and luck, two things startup needs the most. He goes, but have you thought about observation? Have you thought about what is going to happen in the market. There's going to be some people that get out early and their first market win. But he goes, what's your thought on first to market? Go think about that and come back and see me. And I thought about it. My answer was first to market is another entrepreneurial myth. It doesn't matter. First to market is like the myth of the patent system. There are multiple ways to protect an idea, uh, trademarks, copyrights, uh, uh, trade secret, right? Like, the kernel doesn't patent the recipe because it gives you a way to reverse engineer what the recipe is, right? So I was right. thinking about all these things, and I was like, 
wait a second, what advantage do I have if I just take notes for the next two years on who's working on what project and what they built and who's, and I start a company with two years of observation. And that was Chaotic Moon. And I went to Mike and I said, I'm going to start this company. And Mike wanted to join. And we met Ben Lamb at the South By in 2009 in March. I was like, well, I met this guy earlier and he can sell anything to anybody. And he's a funny little guy and he's, he's awesome. I just saw him at CES. And, and, and the three of us came together and I was like, so here's what I've got. I've got credibility from doing the iPhone dev camps forever. I've got this community and building stuff. I've got this thing at South by we can take all of this and then the enterprise relationships from all the companies I met at IBM and BMC and everywhere. And we can go to them and say, we can build your mobile strategy, your mobile apps, your mobile, whatever. And I built this relationship with Apple, right? So I've had all this stuff going on. That was where I learned this is how you build a startup. You don't get an idea and quit your job and start a company. You get an idea and don't tell your job and you stay there for a year or two and you build it up until it's somewhat solid and then you go test it. And then when it looks like it's like almost ready to go, then you've boiled the majority of the risk out of your idea. Hmm. And so from there, I started this policy of always knowing what my next three startups are, three to five. And then when I have an event where I cash out or I make money, I take about a quarter million dollars and I invest it in that idea. And I get the domain names and I get the stuff. And so I've watched this so, happen now for several, <laughs> for several years, right? For several years. You know, and this is true. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's like when I was at, on when I was at, at there's, a, there's a future robotics company. Yeah. Mostly robot. I already own the domains. <laughs> I already have the name, right? I've got, I've yeah, got all this know, stuff, right? right. There, there's a, there's a biotech company. I don't want to say the name of it. It's super cool, but, 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 but right. But you lay these out. And, and, and I learned this from Mike because chaotic moon, the secret is nobody knows was actually formed back in 2004 when he picked me up from the airport when I moved back from Vegas. And he was like, we're going to do a company one day. And he goes, here's the thing. I always structurally plan these things out in advance. We should come up with a name and form a shell company. And I'll keep it going. Right. And then when we start the company, you'll have like 10 years of credit history and 10 years of everything. And he goes, and it, and it takes nothing. I'll just do this. Mike is a master at business structure and legalities and entities. I mean, he's a genius. And he was wearing this shirt with the moon with a pistol shooting the sun it's like crescent moon and he goes so what we'll do is i said well i don't know what do we call it and he goes well let's pick out a word for each of us he goes i'll pick out a word for you chaotic and, and that was a word and he goes you pick out a word and like 10 minutes later he was like you pick out a word and and there was this woman i went on to do a, a movie with that i really love we dated for a while erin gailey she's an amazing amazing person who was sitting uh, over in the corner of this place, <laughs> and I was like really wanting to talk to her, <laughs> and I talked to Mike about a business we were at Spider House here in Austin, and uh, I was like, yeah, I just looked at his shirt and I go Moon, and he goes Catting Moon, done, and just because Mike doesn't even care, our 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 personal fund is called Prismatic Sun. It's just random words; it doesn't really matter what it's called, like you know, branding. <laughs> out the window and and so when we went to start the mobile company he was like we already have a company so we can turn this on it's got everything so then when the enterprises went to look at us to do business with versus a competitor you had a company that was formed in the last two years 
or in the last six months, and a company had 10 years of operations history that hadn't done anything, but like structurally had all this stuff and looked. Yeah, here's our more. operating agreement signed in uh, 10 years ago. Correct. And they were like, oh yeah, we can spend money with that company. And it just In a off. sense, that's what we did with Emergent Order because um, I was working at Spike and I initially, I created, I would occasionally get these little side hustle uh, projects and I created an LLC called The Production Years in October of 2007. And when, um, you know, after a year of, I mean, we, I kind of, unbeknownst sort of followed what you're saying because we were you know while I was at Spike we did our first big uh, rap video Fear the Boom and Bust and then it was another year of doing freelance and and like meeting people and and like seeing like wow there's a real need for this kind of work and then when and then Josh and Lisa and I said okay let's do this but but so we renamed the production years emergent order and wrote a new operating agreement but we already had like we already had uh, four years of and let's get operations. And let's so to get speak. this straight. It's, it has I'm come not in handy. To say it's great like, advice. I'm not trying to say like I came up with some genius thing. I, I basically stumbled upon this. But then as I've gotten more mature, as I've done more startups, as I've talked to other founders like yourself, I found out all the people who are successful, this is actually how they do it. I haven't yet to meet somebody who's super successful who's like, I had a job, I quit it, I start, you know, I've, I've yet to meet a uh, a person who says, well, I quit my job on Friday. I started a company on Monday. People gave me money. Things worked out. I was rich. Everybody I meet that's what I'd call like a really solid entrepreneur is like was working somewhere and I had this thing on the side and I ran it for like a year or two years or whatever. And then when I started, I had four years, ten years, it's five years. It's like the years. clutch and the gas. It you know, is. You, you, you it have is. To, you're easing off the clutch as you're starting to give it, it gas is. and there's a change point, but that's it's a exact, subtle one. That's exactly right. And so, so again, you know, not trying to be like, oh, I'm some entrepreneurial genius. I didn't come up with this. I just, it happened to be what we did, you know, what I did when I did Chaotic Moon. And it worked. We we made millions of dollars in the first year from we launched at South by in March, and we made millions and millions. And our competitors had been working for three years, and we're still doing like two million dollars a year in revenue. And we blew past everybody. And I and all I did was what my mentor had told me: observation. I was like, oh, notes coming in prepared to the game late. Actually, super huge advantage, right? So I thought, well, how can I do that? And but but have it be closer to timing, right? So I said, ooh, well, I'm interested in finance and biohacking and quantum computing and robotics. And I made a list of like 15 things that sounded interesting. And I picked a couple of them and I bought domains and I bought stuff and I started doing it. And so the only one that I that I didn't have the domain and stuff for was I didn't own Honest Dollar. Um, that came at an epiphany when I was sitting at uh, breakfast with... Uh, Henry and I went uh, to honestdollar.com and it said you can buy this domain now for six hundred dollars and I was like fucking done. <laughs> but 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 I had another fintech name already that wasn't as cool. And likewise, I was going to use StrangeWorks for something else. I own the domain and everything, but my original quantum computing company was going to be called Unusual Bit, right? Because da da, you know, yep. it's kind of clever. Um, but I like StrangeWorks way better as a domain, and I have bigger plans for this this company. But all of those things are. So, so just to oh, just to overview, you've got chaotic. This is, you start chaotic. What year? Two thousand ten. South by Southwest. And if I remember correctly, one of your big hits was the the iPad. The app, daily. The daily. <laughs> which it's funny because 
when the iPad came out, I was working at Spike. One of my former colleagues at Nickelodeon had actually been hired because I was in New York by to, to go work as a content producer on this new iPad only yep. publication, The Daily. Yep. And it's just it's just so funny that you're because like so I had kind of a front row seat to the content side. It was uh, it was awesome. You have to tell the story of the pitch for the daily. Well, well, it wasn't look, it, it wasn't a pitch. There's this guy Brian Alvey. You should all go look him up. He has a super cool new media company he's doing. Um, uh, he's called Clipisode, I think, or maybe I just said the completely wrong name of his company. Um. Sorry, Brian. I don't know why it's not coming to me. But no, that's it. It's Clipisode. Is it okay? Good, I got it. But he he's super cool guy. So I get invited to a VC who will go in names like private thing, um, and uh, we're we got to do a couple of activities. One of them was horseback riding. We're all horseback riding, and this is you and Ben and Mike. No, 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 me. Okay, and nobody. Okay, but we have the company started at this yes. time, and uh, you know. The lady's asking, you know, would you sign here your waiver? Would you like a helmet? No. Would you like a helmet? No. She asked me, would you like a helmet? I say, yeah. So I turn around and people are up on the horses. I'm one of the only people with a helmet. And these guys are kind of looking at me funny. I'm like, look, I don't know a lot, but I know if you ever ask, would you like a helmet? Somewhere before you, someone <laughs> really, really needed one. So maybe take the helmet, you know, just surprise. And then people got off and they got a helmet. But I meet Brian and we're kind of talking and I kind of got in this situation where I made fun of the VC. The VC hated me. The VC would just like never invite him again. Just like ask me to leave pretty much at the end of the day. It was like, could you just go ahead and leave now? You're saying all these things about being an entrepreneur and not taking money and just get out of here. This is not how our <laughs> business works. But um, but Brian uh, was secretly working for Rupert Murdoch and Steve Jobs on The Daily. And there was no app. But everybody was talking about the app coming. And he was like, I don't know, but I recently met this crazy person. So, you know, we get these calls and, uh, you know, Ben, you know, is like, somebody's calling. They say they're working for Rupert Murdoch or something. Like, I don't know. Like, I just keep hanging up on them or whatever. You know, maybe it's Rupert. Who knows, right? And uh, I'm like, uh, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. They're just leaving these messages. I was like, well, call them back. You know, and, and we ended up going to New York and we had the perfect pitch was because at Chaotic Moon, we found out the best thing to do was take a bunch of money off the table early. It's good for us, good for the customer if we do a discovery phase. We say, you know what? We're going to come in. You're going to pay us a little bit of money or a lot of money, and we're going to figure out what all the problems are. And we're going to lay out a path and a plan. And even if you don't ever talk to us again, we're going to have given you some value. Everybody loved it. It was great. And that was our original pitch so this is who's in this pitch meeting so well, no well i mean it was jesse angelo um rupert murdoch all the you know it was all the people you know was jobs in it. this room for this no he's on the phone all the time at this point he's sick right so yeah. he's on the phone all the time and we did do a bake-off bins i would would kill me if i didn't say this we did do a bake-off against apple's design team and we did you know he did like our stuff better so just <laughs> for the record um uh, but Ben McCraw and, 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 and Jamie Lou and, and, uh, Brian and the design team we had that, that Ben had put together was bar none. They're incredible. So there's no shock at that. But, um, but basically we're leaving and, uh, cause we're like, here's what you can do. And Steve Smith, my longtime friend from Apple, uh, was there with us and, uh, 
it was me and Ben and Steve on site and uh, and Ben McCraw and a couple people. Well, Ben McCraw wasn't quite there yet. Brian Simpson uh, was there. Anyway, we're all there and we're leaving. And Rupert's kind of like, where are you going? Like, you're building it, right? You know, and, and we're just like, <laughs> we would have to build this whole thing in like record like the biggest project ever in record time with all of this and uh and at this point you, you have, did you even have clients yet i mean you had some oh, yeah. like what we was had, the but we, you were we, a small we company some, we we're a small company we'd done a couple of original things we had some clients but um ben negotiated this deal for us to get very handsomely paid to get to stay at places in new york uh in manhattan and do stuff and we we did the daily and it was way ahead of its time and I've always was like you and know, it was a resource hog <laughs> no, no. of course it was <laughs> look at look at what yeah iPad 1.0 wasn't quite up to the challenge no it was no it was not and very famously the demo crashed when they were giving it live on stage and it was like of course it crashed you're trying to take the, the one of the things they wanted just the images alone they had these cameras that were like the red cameras of the day and it was like you're trying to pump like 40 of those videos into one app on top of like 3d rendering crazy yeah it was incredible it was a super crazy interface at the time the 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 best part of the daily the only story i mean i don't want to tell a lot of daily stories because it was that was some of the greatest times ever and i love jesse to death um, and I met so many people there, David Brinker, who's now at snap and I'm still friends with like a whole lot of these people. Mike Cronin, who works at the Austin business journal was one of the reporters at the daily. <laughs> like he was back. I saw him a couple of years ago at South Bay. He's like, really? I'm like, Mike, I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I work in Austin for the business journal. What are you doing here? It's like, I've never left. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, um, but there's so many good people and there's so many stories and people always want to tell these stories and out this stuff. There's no, there's only one story to tell about the daily. Only one. And that is we're working hard. It's supposed to come out at any time. The Super Bowl, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And we're working and Rupert has an announcement and he's they put this big TV in the blank floor that was at this point we moved up to a floor in the news court building that they're turning into like the floor for the daily and half of it was still blank but this but yeah TV so you're there. doing all this dev in new york oh it's yeah, like yeah, this is crazy we and, have bought you for the next and, nine months and they <laughs> it, it was three <laughs> <laughs> but yes we have bought we have you this big tv and then here are Here's you're your gonna coffins. Take, you're gonna take leave right nine. Alongside. You're gonna take nine months and just sleep in a coffin. It. But but then he but then he he has this announcement. And it was great and it was like, I had something made for us. It's awesome. Okay, because they just released and Will I am is and the Black Eyed Peas. I think we're playing that year and they're on stage. I remember that because Will is now a friend and we met him later and it was weird. It was all these things like weirdly tied together and they're playing and they stop. And there's a commercial, and it's another Super Bowl commercial. And then starts the Ramones playing, you know, It's a Wonderful World. And it's like, America, get ready to meet the Daily. And it's like the iPad rising out of the ocean. Like a monolith. Cliff. Yeah. And it's like, I, I remember the skies this ad. of blue. 
yeah. And then, you know, and it's and when it shows the sports, the iPad's laying down like a 3D stadium builds up on top of the iPad, opens up, and all that. And it was just like it was overpromise much. It was incredible. It was fucking phenomenal. And Steve Smith, who I love, one of my best friends, who was helping leading engineering, goes, Well, that completely missets expectations. <laughs> just walks off. And then I'm like, we just had an app. Think about this. An app we just built had a Super Bowl commercial designed by the people that did the NFL. And don't get me wrong, it definitely – like at the end, this guy's sitting on a park bench, and the bits just stream out of the sky, and he's instantly flipping back and forth. Yeah, with no latency. It's with super zero smooth. Late. I mean, it was amazing. But I was like still stuck in like – we just had an app we built in a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah, that's amazing. That must have been an amazing feeling. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we went on drinks that night, and we were like, oh, yeah, this is going to be horrible trying to live up to these expectations. <laughs> but again, it was in the Super Bowl. The only thing is, like, if it could have just had our logo in it anywhere, that would have been just amazing. But, of course, that was, you know, yeah. between Steve and Rupert, yeah, doubt not going to happen. But but yeah, but I mean, you know, Chaotic was great and it and it set up a bunch of stuff and it set up our first funds. Mike started SLE with Mike and Ben and I. Started the SLE. So when you say funds, fund, you're just, you're like explain investment what you mean. funds. Yeah. So we took all the money. So Chaotic Moon was making all this money, way more than other mobile companies, and everybody's like, Well then how come you don't have a Ferrari or apartment at the W or whatever? And it's cause Mike was like, Hey, we're making all this money. Here's what we should do. Should form a fund. We start investing in a bunch of these apps, like the game apps and this and that. And eventually, Ben let us invest in uh, teaming up with Andrew Busey and doing this Team Chaos company, which was acquired by Zynga, which is an amazing game company that you know uh, financially, you know, never had like a super big hit, but like amazing talent, did just incredible work, made a bunch of great properties. Uh, but we we had these funds, and we were like, now we're starting to do some investment. And each of us had different ways we were investing and different stuff, and that in 2012 probably and so take the last six seven years mike and i've been testing out this stuff building up to the ecliptic stuff right so it was a pretty interesting path on 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 how chaotic really became kind of my really first startup that was like clearly i'm a founder and that's not to be like my first one was a success i had the benefit of working at two before that were successful but not commercially right like technology wise were success they were they were impactful but but it was like like this one was definitely on me i was like i've started something you know and for people who don't uh either don't remember what the daily is or have never heard of chaotic moon i mean just list some of the apps some of the big oh, apps that you starbucks guys starbucks and whole foods and american idol and x factor and hello kitty and just marvel on it marvel and disney and on and on and on and on basically like every major top show oh, brand it was in, oh it was incredible and the more we did the more we got and it just like you know just built you know success and when we and you were you were in the process of selling chaotic when we when we met and i was struck by and i still am to this day you your approach to pitching, which you've kind of talked about in a way here, like this, 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 it's a challenger pitch. You, you kind of, you challenge the, the people you're pitching to in a way that takes a lot of guts. Yeah, but, but it does and it doesn't because I think it's like holding a mirror up to them. It's kind of the reality, right? Um, I don't, 
like bullshit pitches. I don't like that. Everything's great and it's all amazing. And I was, cause we all know it's not, you know, like startups, right? One of the other rules around the whole data, not drama principle, which I am turning into a book is uh, startups are always in one of two phases. They're struggling or they're out of business. And anybody who tells you anything other than those two is yeah. lying to your face, right? Yeah, my buddy Jim Tusty always says it's entrepreneurial terror. Yeah. It's like, what do you, what, why is profit a thing? Well, because it's the only way you can justify being scared all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're always struggling or out of business. Like, I, I mean, I just did this gig with the, the Chamber of Commerce here in Austin. They had U Force from South by Southwest interviewed me and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I was trying to tell everybody, you know, it's something like anytime somebody tells you like how great it is and how awesome it is and how everything's going, like if that's what they say, like just know that's what they look like when they are lying to you because it, it cannot be. We have sold a company to Accenture, a company to Zynga, a company to Goldman Sachs. We sold other companies to data centers. We sold companies we've invested in. We are not like the greatest entrepreneurs ever we've heard of. But we have done a lot of shit, and we are very successful. And we don't give a shit that nobody's ever heard about us. And we know a lot of shit, and we have a lot of experience, and we have a lot of resources that you don't. And I just started a new company, and I will tell you right now, if you go talk to David Cardona, who has been through several of those and was at Anastaller, who was my COO, he looks terrified every day. Because when you start <laughs> over, sure, Maybe getting funding might be a little easier because of our success, okay? I'm not saying there aren't advantages, but it's like the difference between my 22-year-old son's startup, Chilligens, which does due diligence for startups, okay, and Strangeworks is I'm rich and famous compared to him, and that's about it. Like, <laughs> we're both struggling to figure out what the next round looks like and how do we get the customer base where's the print like all everything else is pretty much a shit show and that's every startup and i just hate when and so when you talk about pitching customers it was like why are you going to go in and be like through the power of your brand and the with the amazing technology why don't you just be like look we both know that by the time you called us everything's on here has got to be like is it on fire have you put the fire out is it smoldering like what's the situation and half the time the people would just be like well here's the deal okay <laughs> so we hired this company in like you know india canada japan wherever they did this app well, what they didn't know is that we wanted the app in english but they did the app in like portuguese and they shipped the app in the app store so everybody's so got one star rating with five star ratings what it's just horrible we've got two weeks to figure you know and and by the way you know you good those situations you could also be like well unfortunately that's really expensive <laughs> right 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 but but yeah the pitch was just i mean the pitch is honesty which is why can't you just sit with somebody and be like, look, we have not done that before and we'd love to do it. And there's people that you could get that are going to tell you they've done it before, but they haven't either. And we're a super solid bet and we're going to shoot you straight, you know, and people like that, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it's and I'm doing the same thing with Strangeworks. Quantum computing is not for everybody. And it sucks because I've talked to about seven customers in the last quarter of the year where I could have gotten money from them and I didn't. And I'm OK with that. And other people are like, oh, but you could have done this or you could already be doing that. It's like, yeah, to what end? So that two years later they can find out that like eh, it's not really valuable to them or it won't be valuable to them for 10 years. And then I'm the asshole that took their money. Why, why 
entrepreneur is so afraid of just being like honest with people. They have to have this illusion the company's going great. You know what? The person that's hiring you at the corporation, if you're in like a services entrepreneurship, trust me, man, they already know that you're at some shit little startup that isn't making any money. That's why when they called, you showed up the same day or the next day. They know you're desperate for the money. Just be like, hey, we both know that this relationship could really make what I'm doing. It's not going to break me, but it could really make me. Let's talk about how we make that deal happen. You know, everybody puts on these this false bravado, this war pain of entrepreneurship where they're putting out these images. And it's like, I think it costs everybody a lot of time and a lot of trouble. When you see the heartbreak and the bad stories, you can always trace them back to someone misset the expectations in the beginning. So put a cap on the chaotic moon um, uh, era, if you will. What 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 marks your exit? I know you you've mentioned already that you sold to Accenture, which is a giant um, consulting firm that does software services and all kinds of stuff. Look, we grew apart. We all wanted to exit on a high note. It was a cash cow. It was going to be easy to transact to anybody. I left. Started thinking about which one of those things in my bags would be next. Ben was CEO. Mike started managing the transaction. Uh, we knew it was going to sell, and I just waited for the for the check to come in. And that's honestly, I mean, I did my part during the acquisition, but I mean that. And I'm not saying trying to say those guys didn't do a lot of work in getting that company acquired, but I mean, all the brands, all the money, all the stuff. It wasn't, you know, they they weren't they weren't selling a failing business, right? It was not. It was that that pitch was not super hard. Like with this thing that spits off money, has all these bands, owns all these properties, does all this other stuff. It, it wasn't like a modern publisher that'll go unnamed. It's like I think we might have been a Ponzi scheme all along, but if you buy us, you'll have all these eyeballs. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it was. It was a pick your pick your digital publisher who feels right. that way right now. It was a it was a solid thing, and and. And I knew that, and they knew that, and and so I I stayed on board to 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 help and do that stuff. But I exited daily responsibilities at the business, and I moved on. Um, and I needed to know how much of the success was driven by me, and how much of it was those guys. And and the reality is, you couldn't have done it without the three of us. And people always ask us, "Do you hate each other? Do you this? Do you that?" There's all these rumors out there. And the fact is, is like, we don't agree on a lot of stuff. I'm in a fun with Mike now. I've known him for almost 30 years and will continue to work with him for 30 more years. And Ben and I just hung out at CES, and it, but we were joking about it because it was like somebody asked him, well, would you go back and do it all again if you had a time machine? And the answer from all of us is, fuck yes. It was amazing. We would do the daily again. We would do the company. We'd do all of it again. It was incredible. And it made all of us you know, phenomenally independently wealthy and gave us all an incredible entrepreneurial story and tons of content. Like, yes, yes, yes. Like everything we could have collected, you know, if it was, if it was a, if it was Minecraft, you know, we had like hundreds of thousands of everythings to build and turn and make, you know, it was incredible. So we meet in, I think it's 2013. Or 2014. I'm still remember. going at that point. Yeah, 20, 20, 2014 is when I start the right. kind of the kind so of step. I'll, I'll start off our, our story a little bit, which is I am um, implausibly am invited uh, to an event at Peter Thiel's house, who I don't have any real. I don't know him. 
one somebody that worked with Peter Thiel appeared in our second rap video, Jim O'Neill, who we both know. And who's awesome. Who's who's a great but guy. But has yet to call me back. And I'm just going to call him <laughs> out in case he listens to this and be like, he never... Right, he never. Calls and you've me back. met you met Jim like totally independently of us. It was like, oh my god, through but, ironically Brian Balendorf. <laughs> so, um, I get an email from Peter Thiel, which seems like a weird thing to get, like saying, "I'm having this uh, event about um, technology and regulation, hosted by the Federalist Society," and I my immediate thought is. I assume Jim wrote this email and gave it to Peter to send to me and to the because why would why am I even being invited to this? I'm like I'm like a court jester who made a goofy rap video and is being brought to this thing. I mean, I'm an econ nerd, so I, it was fun and interesting, but it was like totally a bizarre thing for me to be at. So I'm so I'm there, we're there at Peter's house for two days talking. I mean, it's like Antonin Scalia's son is there. All these amazing people are there. And I so I come back. I'm getting on my the airplane. It's a Virgin flight uh, to to Austin, and you know our company is very young. I'm like just as scared then as I am now about about staying alive, which is what we always are all the time as entrepreneurs. And I notice on my ticket that it's like one D or two D or something, and I'm like, oh, that's a very low number, like because I'm not flying first class ever. So it's, it was it was like, <laughs> oh, huh? I wonder if Virgin. Oh wait a second! I didn't book these flights. Peter's people did. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. So I sit down, and here's this guy sitting next to me, that's looks like the ultimate, like uh, eclectic hipster with this big beard, <laughs> and he's working on like a website with his own face on the page. <laughs> and and uh, and I'm like, well. I'm pretty sure I'm in, sitting next to somebody interesting. We start talking, and I, I had just come back from keynoting the Canadian Financial Forum, which I should have never done, <laughs> um, in where I uh, was talking to a bunch of financiers about funding stuff and trying to put it in the lens of a startup as best I could and telling jokes that were bombing uh, using clips um like uh, I used a clip from South Park um, where they go to the bank. Have you seen that one? And uh, Is this the, the one with the chicken getting get head no, caught the, in the, the back? Kid, no, the kid, okay. goes, the kid goes to the bank. It's like uh, my dad says I should open an account. He goes, that's great. We can take that money and put it to work and put it, and it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gone. I remember. He's like, yeah. what? He's like, your money. It's all gone. You invested it and did the stuff and it's uh, didn't work out. He's like, wait, what? And he's like, next. <laughs> um, and then I, I played another clip was National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation, where I'm like, this is you guys going to your LPs. And it's when Chevy Chase goes to ATM. He's like, ah, and the money's coming out. And then he takes it to the table. And the guy's like, why don't you just give me the money? We'll go out back. I'll kick you in the nuts. We'll call it a day. <laughs> And it's like, and that's most of the startups you invest in, right? And nobody, yeah, they loved those clips. Nobody's laughing at any of it. I have a whole, I just, I have these for a whole hour, right? Um, but yeah, but we met, and I just found it ironic that I, as somebody in tech, should have been at something with Peter Thiel, and you should have been with all of these people. Your video would have been a huge hit in that room, right? Uh, as opposed to the video clips I had picked. Which were apparently uh, one as I one. mean, I still would have been a, a hack non-economist, but I, I would have sounded a little closer. <laughs> as one as one re, as one reviewer said, 
demeaning and unnecessary <laughs> battery of my profession, I think was what they said. I'll never forget that. <laughs> so, and it's funny because we started off this conversation talking about how you got to be known as Whirly. And at the time, that, a lot of our conversation was about this question of branding and you were you were yeah. thinking about where were you headed next, and you're yeah. saying I'm trying to figure out my like my personal. No, brand it was really and... funny because I found out that you did all this stuff, and I was like, maybe this guy can give me some advice. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, there's this thing. It's like not a brand. I haven't really done it, but then like I'm playing with it, then and I ended up not doing it. Right. right. I mean, yeah. I had built this whole thing, and I was like, yeah, no, forget it. <laughs> yeah. So I get off the plane, I come back, and I'm like, I met this really cool guy, and I think maybe we can do some business. And then it was like, and then we just we were just fast friends after that. Yeah, we were instant like instant BFFs and uh, and uh, and have been working together in all manner of crazy stuff since. So I got to have a front row seat at the earliest stages of the conversations about what became Honest Dollar. Yes, which was the best. I mean, it wasn't the best. Each one of these startups I've done, you know, which I really consider, I really consider being a part of all of them. I count all of them. But if you really want to start, it's like, what have you done as a founder? Like, what have you actually, like, you came up with ideas. You did this stuff. It starts with Chaotic Moon. A couple things spin off of that, but really moves to Honest Dollar, where I say, I need to know if it's me, right? I need to know if this is me, or 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 am I? Am I? Have I really now? It's taken your post Beatles. Okay, can can I can I be Paul McCartney without the Beatles? Right. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Is this sustainable, or? Do I need to go running back to those guys or find some other guys and gals or figure it out or what? Because that is a drug. That's success. You're like, this is great. Like, nobody knows who we are, but we're kind of like rock stars. We got like a cult following, so we can still go and eat. But it was like, there were so many great things. And you're like, I need to figure that out. But the main thing nobody you, knows who you are, but very few people have the president of the United States shout out, shout you out, but by your weird techie tech handle. Name, right? <laughs> but the main thing that I, I got at Chaotic Moon was, I got all the money, and early on, I got rid of a lot of the money and gave a lot of it to charity because I got here was the deal. Growing up, you know, you know, without a lot of means, the means always seem like the thing, and then I had it, and I found like that doesn't really make me happy. I'm not motivated by the house or the car or the thing or the whatever, or even the experiences. Like the millennials, they all spend all the money on experiences. I just the money just doesn't it's just a thing it's just like my computer i don't play games on my computers because to me computers are like hammers and screwdrivers it's a tool it's like i don't know do you play games with your you know electrician's kit you know you don't okay then why are you you know i had this electrician at my house he's like oh what games you got on there and he was all freaked out that like offended that i didn't have like some Fortnite or something on my computer and it was like well do you well this is a tool for me like do you play games with this stuff on your belt and he's like no that's dumb and it's like yeah that's kind of how i feel about it but but what what i learned at chaotic moon was a, a super good lesson it was a company for fun and profit and the narrative arc is starts company for fun and profit. It was all models and bottles. It was great. Got rid of all the money, made it all back tenfold. I mean, I didn't get rid of it. I mean, I'm charities and stuff, but it didn't do anything. It, it did nothing for me. It didn't motivate me to make more money. It, it, it depressed me. It was like, I, it was almost a burden, right? And people who are entrepreneurs who really want money are like, well, oh, give me that burden. It's real easy. Yeah, but, that's a burden. I'll, 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 uh, but I'll they carry your burden but they, for yeah, you. Yeah, but they don't, but they don't, but, but you don't, 
everybody's different. They're, if I was a different person, I might be like, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm rich, right? That's not what motivates me. I loved the creation of the stuff. I loved doing stuff. I learned, I loved so many parts about it. The money was a byproduct and it became a byproduct that became a problem because it literally is more money, more problems. It's like, now you have people calling you about like, hey, you have all these K1s and you have these other things. And like, literally at the time, it's like, what the fuck is a K1? Like, what is this thing? What are these things, you know? And, and so, and you, and it was like, kind of this overnight success had brought with it a ton of stress, you know? And it was like, I don't really care that I don't own a Ferrari or that I live in a condo downtown. I don't really give a shit. I'm fine. Like, so I don't really need any of this mess. But Chaotic Moon was fun and profit. And so when I went to Honest Dollar, the goal was, let's be the hero. Let me start a business where I'm going to change the world and make it for a better place. And there's no bigger place that needs changing than a financial system, right? Which is completely structured to keep rich people rich and poor people poor. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't I mean, agree with that. No, but but. I, say it, I say it purposely knowing you don't agree with it. Just, <laughs> right. so, so at this point, maybe somebody's like, now I'm listening. <laughs> like, oh, they just woke up. Somebody's like, what? <laughs> but no, but what I mean is like, look, you, when you, certain areas, when you look at like payday loans and things like this, there are things that are just egregious, right? I don't agree with that either. I, <laughs> I know, but they, but they are. But they, but they are because, but because we don't. I think what you, I think that the reality is is that uh, finance is very complicated. It's also wildly, crazily, irrationally regulated by an alphabet soup of organizations that like have turf wars over whose jurisdiction it is. Is this the SEC or the CFPB or the, you know, there's this, so you have, it is, it is an industry that's got a lot of problems, but they're not problems that are the result of the nature of finance. Finance is just oh, no, a business no, no. like any other. No, no, no. The people that work in finance let me, are people me, just like me, anybody let me, else. Let me, okay, so it's sort of like healthcare and education. Let me, distinguish, kind of, let me distinguish between finance and when I say financial system, it's the wrong way to describe it. There are components that have emerged within that system that absolutely, you know, are are rigged. And this isn't because of regulation or because of anything. It's just like you know, payday loans is a great example, right? Payday loans. Here's my problem with payday loans. It's not actually with the, the, I hate them. I don't like the payday loans. I hate that we've done such a poor job of educating people in this country that people used to get paid monthly and then they got paid every two weeks and now they get paid every week and people still can't manage their money for a week. And that just scares the shit out of me. That freaks me out. And then it makes me depressed that there are people that are like, people can't manage money for more than a week. I can take advantage of that well, to the to the I tune that they do. I don't think that's fair either, right? 20%, 28%, 36%, that's a lot. I well, mean, those, so, are, those are things structured that people can't pay it back, right? Arguably. It's very interesting. It's a, We don't have to go down too much of a rabbit hole. All I know, I'll say but, is this, is that... If you're, but it's um, you, so I threw it out. Yes. Well, so I mean, like, look, I, I'm not some expert on payday loans. Here's what I know. I know that um, interest rates are are exist for a couple different reasons, and one of them is to price risk. So if you are going to lend to a Absolutely. group of people who, whether through fault of their own or no fault of their own, have a very high rate of defaulting on your loans, 
the only way you can continue to exist as an entrepreneur trying to help those people by giving them the money they need at the time that they need it is set the interest rate high enough that you can offset all the people who turn around and say, I'm sorry, I don't have it. Right. And so the and alternative to that is loan sharks who say are in a black market. And so and, we have this kind the, of, the, the there's pay. a kind of like, it's like, it's sort of like sweatshops, right? So who likes sweatshops? Nobody likes. Why would anybody like sweatshops? I think we could name several clothing brands. That... Well, at a human <laughs> level, the, right. the notion of somebody working yeah, literal sweatshop is horrible. But like Paul Krugman, a, a long like this before he kind of got a little nuts, wrote a whole piece <laughs> saying that sweatshops are great. And here's what he meant by that: um, provided you're not being chained to your desk and forced to work. The people that are moving from rural areas in China or Bangladesh or, you know, on farms where your kids die, there's no, almost no job more d dangerous and difficult than agriculture, especially impoverished agriculture. They're moving to these sweatshops, not because sweatshops are awesome, but because it's better than the alternative. And unfortunately, the wor in the world, we live in a world of adjacent possibilities. And so I'm, I'm, I'm saying, like, the people that like to attack payday lending... Um, and my, this is my warning to you, my friend, people like the politicians who like to say, look at these high interest rates. It's like, well, it's an interest rate for a week and you're, you're looking at the annual rate. So that's not even fair, but they are pretending there's this alternative where we can just magically erase risk. And of course there's never any blame for people who default. And, and we, the reality but is we have was... to, we have to like, should we ban things that are provide it? There, it's, it's a weird thing in finance in particular. It's totally is. So, so the, the so products our, for so, poor people are always being banned. So, 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 so here's the thing. <laughs> like, what do you think they're going to do now? They're going to go to loan sharks. So here's the thing. Terrible so, scenario. So here's the thing. So we've gone down a rabbit hole. So no, the, we haven't actually, we've gone to exactly why I created honest dollar, which is I actually disagree. I think that those products are, engineered horribly i i feel that i have personally growing up as a young person been you know somewhat victimized by some of those so there's there's definitely some emotional slant to that i also feel that there's stupidity in some of these regulations for example uber workers sh uh, should be uh you know uh w-2 employees instead of 1099s because they'll get benefits well wait a second w-2 employees still pay for their fucking benefits why is that not a free market? I offer something to 1099s that's competitively priced in benefits. So taking this kind of like not liking the payday loans for right or wrong, taking this kind of what was going on in the legislative system and all, we said we can build something better as entrepreneurs. We can do what entrepreneurs do. We can solve a problem that addresses this regulatory concern that helps these people out of this thing we don't like, right? That gives them a better alternative that educates them, right? And we said, you know, what if the person that works at the tire shop that goes to the bar every Friday, what if we learn that behavior? We could just give them a notification and say, looks like you're going to the bar again. Now, every time you do, you think you're gonna spend 20 bucks, you spend 200 bucks. But if you get a six pack of Netflix tonight, here's where we could redo that money. And just give them the choice. They still make the wrong choice. We're not trying to behaviorally change anything. We're just making them aware. And, and what we found in some quick A-B testing is some people will make what we would say is the right choice, which is wrong of us to say. It's not our choice to make, okay? And some people would continue down that line of behavior. And that's fine. But you, but you could surface information because there are some people that when we went out and talked to people and said, 
look, I could show you this about your finance. They'd be like, well, I never thought about that before. I don't understand how compound interest works. I don't understand. Nobody's ever educated me. And you'd be surprised at how quickly they could, because people think that poor people have credit cards that are moving money from credit card to credit card to do all this stuff. They're like, oh, they're horrible with finance. Actually, if you look at the way some of them are bouncing that around, they're kind of financial geniuses, right? Like there, there's some people that are like, yeah, I've never understood free- this idea that because somebody doesn't have an in, a, a high income, they necessarily must be somehow financially smart. illiterate, right? Like I disagree with that completely. I, just so a, we took all of this and we yeah. rolled it in and we said, what can we do? Well, where are the majority of these people? They're either self-employed, they work at a small business, or they're in this new class of 1099 type contract Sort of workers. gig economy. Yeah. The gig economy that was coming up at the time, right? I said, what could we do? And what we said is, well, well, why don't small businesses offer benefits? Why don't they offer a 401k package? So we did some investigation. What we found out is, you know, pretty much all your 401k programs are complete ripoffs. And I don't mind saying that. Like, they are. I can demonstrably prove that if you have a 401k i can show you where that is not where you should be putting money well and what a lot of people i think don't even realize is that what why does 401k have the name 401k it's because it's a weird tax code loophole that the guy who created is on record as saying i wish i would have never done that it's become (laughs) a monster it's fucking horrible for people like the person who created it Thinks it's horrible. So we said, we said, okay, well, if the 401k system's bad, well, is that why small businesses don't offer them? No, small businesses don't offer them because there's this thing called the 401k averages book. The industry depends on, okay? And it says, John and I have a business and we have eight employees and we have $100,000 in assets among us. And it says, so that's $10,000 each and this is what we do. Okay, and it tells you how you can do all the kind but that's not the reality. Reality is John and I have... and our eight employees have $5,000 among them. And if we offered a 401k program, we're essentially going to subsidize their savings out of our money. But we're smart entrepreneurs, so we're not going to do that. And so small businesses don't offer plans for the most part. And there's different things you can do where people glom on and they do these shared plans and all this other stuff. But it's an ineffective system. We said, but there is this thing called the IRA. And if you look back to that original law when it came in against, it's not called the 401k law it's called the 401k and ira and these things were created at the same time there's different kind of ras there's sep iras and there's roth iras and there's all and we said why don't people use them well they're individual accounts and they're post-tax and there's all this and this whole pre-tax thing is a stupid illusion anyway and the government's looking at taxing your 401k anyway now right um so there's this whole illusion of like you're somehow saving money pre-tax and there's all these benefits and uh, you know, you could argue with it, but look, it's all eaten up in fees. It doesn't matter anyway. You'd be better off just saving the money and controlling it yourself is what we decided. So we set up these IRAs. We said we could do the know your customer laws all digitally. We could do power of attorney digitally to take assets from other things where it wasn't being effectively managed. We could do all these things. We made an app where you pull the app out. You're an Uber or Lyft driver. We did a big deal with Lyft. You take a photo of your license we suck everything in. 30 seconds later, you have an account. But here's the catch. We invested everything in Vanguard funds. Really respected funds, but you need $25,000 as a minimum to, to, to invest. So we said, what if we made these products designed for basically rich people available to basically poor people where they could invest just a dollar in a Vanguard fund? 
right. and did this, you know, fractionalized it and built our own order management system and all this stuff. And then we did it in our areas. And then we did a know your customer thing where we really knew him. We said, you know, John is not great at managing money. But what we can do is we can get him to save a little bit and we can put it in a Roth IRA. So it's post tax and there's not going to be any penalty if he pulls the principal. Right. And so if he has that flat tire, instead of going to that payday guy where the hundred dollar loan is going to cost him two hundred dollars over the course of six months or some crazy bullshit, he could just pull that money out. And if we allowed him to do that, would John save more? If he knew he could get it instead of throwing it over a fence and having to make a dozen calls, if he could just click a button and the money comes right back, would he be more prone to save that money? And what we proved is, yes, that we could build an alternative system based on existing laws, based on all, and, we, and there's no doubt we were using those things in an advantageous way they hadn't been done before. Right. But using that regulatory system to combat this, these different things, and, and just getting all the friction out of it. It's like take, a one it's like a one click one click financial plan. Just and being like, look, you don't all you need to do is you know, it's like, kind of when you get that advice when people are like, yeah, it's called compound interest, you should try just saving. Right? Like sometimes it it's Occam's razor. The simplest solution is the best. It's like if we could just get him to put away a dollar, we could maybe get him to put away 5. And we get him to put away 5, maybe 10. 10 is 100, 100 is 200, right? And there were plenty of cases where somebody put three or four hundred dollars away, took three hundred dollars out, but over the course of the next four months, they'd save up six hundred, right? This is what we were trying yeah. to do. And then, of course, when it got acquired by Goldman Sachs, which was unexpected to everybody, Goldman Sachs didn't plan on we didn't plan nobody. That was a on its one year anniversary. I went on CNBC to announce this, right? Which is a phenomenal entrepreneurial story. The real story was I learned that I had a business for fun and profit. Now I have a business to make the world better, and you don't do that as an individual. We needed Goldman Sachs' reputation, their backing, their infrastructure. As soon as we did that, every TurboTax user got access to Honest Dollar, right? Deal with the IEEE. We did all these big things. and Yeah, I always see the Honest Dollar ads in my mint.com. It's like always... Right. All of these things happen because it takes... Because, because startups and changing the world are very similar in one aspect. Those are team sports. They're not individual endeavors. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, it takes a community. It takes a team. And so it was an amazing story. And But I learned this lesson. So at the first one, I learned, you know, making all the money doesn't really make me happy. And the second one, I learned, I'm probably never going to be the hero entrepreneur. And so now at the new company, I'm like, what is a technology that has the ability to change the world, that has the ability to dramatically impact the human condition in a positive way that needs to be democratized so millions of really creative geniuses have access to it. And that's kind of my approach to Strangeworks is graduating from fun and profit to kind of trying to change the world and be a hero and graduating from that to what I really need to be is a catalyst. So can I build a company that's successful entrepreneurially that empowers a bunch of other people to do really crazy, amazing things? What is Strangeworks? And I, I, uh, I've seen, I, I remember when it was just a, all right, I'm exiting from Goldman and I've started up this thing and here's a cool logo because you're fantastic branding you're just a natural branding guy, so it's like you're you're always like well, here's an you've got the logo and the and, I did, the, I, I and you've got all the stuff in place before the even 
the what it's going to be sometimes. And I, I owe believe. that, you know, Chris Chris Boyles and 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 Ed Temple, uh, who were at Chaotic and and were at Honest Dollars. Well, I called those guys and I spent nine months going through logos, and Chris got frustrated because I was like, it could be this type of company or that type of company, and it changed several times. But but you know, those guys did that particular work, and and at Chaotic, Ben McCraw, you know, and Brian and them did that, you know. Um, I know the right people, so I know it, but you know, just to be clear, I'm not like drawing, I'm not an artist, right? No, but there's <laughs> a, you know, I would say this to, you know, my wife, Lisa was a producer at Nickelodeon and one year she had half of all of the broadcast design award nominations. And she said, am I just like a hack? Because I don't know how to edit and I don't know how to do any of these things. And I said, well, you have access to the same resources of all the other producers at Nick. It's you know how to pick great people. She and she 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 made some of the best hires. She's made some of the best hires at Emergent Order. She made amazing hires at Nickelodeon. People that left Nickelodeon and started successful companies said you just you have great taste and you know great people. It's like that's what's more important than that. Okay, you can't draw. You can't edit. I think because I'm a craft. I'm very much like a craftsman. So she would look at me editing my own stuff and be like, "Well, you're you actually know how to do the thing." It's like. That's one skill, but being able to assemble an unbelievable team yeah. is a totally is is frankly the in a lot of respects kind of the more important skill if you want to build an enterprise, build a build a company. Right. It you know those those are all those are all important, but but yeah. So we so you, we yeah you got you got kind of a front row seat in it, and then <laughs> when I called you and told you like hey there's this thing I think is gonna happen, <laughs> like we went on this trip. I mean the 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 big you know the the big you know, um, you know, my favorite honest dollar moment. I mean, there were so many Goldman moments that were my favorite because working there was you're in the belly of the alleged beast and you're like, it's not a beast at all. It's a bunch of really cool people that work there. And sure, there's a couple assholes like every company and there's probably some people, there's people there that are really concerned about their reputation. They really actually want to impact the world. And they do the 10,000 women initiative and the 10,000 small businesses. And there's all these things you never hear about unless you work there. Like they all know about it. So when they see people talking, you know, about the companies so evil or the, you know, it's the giant tentacled, whatever they're like, they're like, yes, but then there's all these other things, you know? Right. And, and you know, like they're going through a scandal. Life's always a lot more complicated than, especially today. People want to reduce Extremely. things to black and white so that they yeah. don't. So I think it's because it's easier then. Then you don't really have to take it seriously. You don't have to listen. You don't have you to can think just about narrow your view. You don't have to think about things that you that that take. Well, you don't have to think, and that's a big problem in society today, <laughs> like using your brain. <laughs> but but the thing is, is you know my favorite story is you know I'm I, I randomly because we'd been selling some companies and successful. Some this woman, Allison Rhodes in Dallas, who manages money for Goldman, said, uh, I'd like to meet with you. And, uh, you know, her pitch was like, you should give me all your money and I should manage it for you. And, and I was like, hellfire and brimstone and honest dollar and I'm going to wreck retirement. and I'm going to change all the stuff. And then like, who knows where it goes from there? And and she's looking me up and I got like a mind control skateboard. and There's like a taser drone. Then I did all these apps. It's very confusing. And she had just been through this class on like learning to find spot, you know, uh, things that were important for the company and, you know, all this extracurricular stuff. And she called this guy Manju. Awesome, awesome dude. Uh, and she was like, hey, so I met with this guy and I don't know, but maybe we should look at this. And then Manju kind of reached in and they're like, you know, what, would you like to talk to us in New York? 
And it's like, we're raising a Series A. And I'm like, we're going to go pitch Goldman on the Series A. Okay. That's what's going to happen. So I go up for a day and I'm talking to them. And they're like, could you wait here a moment? And some more people come in the room. And I'm talking to them. And they're like, uh, yeah, could you come back tomorrow? We'll, we'll get you a you know, hotel. It's not a problem. Like, we'll and so then come back. And I come back. And then Anthony's in D.C. working on, you know, at the time, all the congressmen and women and senators were like 1099 workers got to be w-2s and we were trying to educate them to like you do realize w-2s pay for all these things you just think they miraculously get for free when they get yeah, a so job there's, right there's, there's there's some tree out there that you can pluck from that is <laughs> right so it's like if, they I, pay, if I make it required the tree becomes a bit <gasps> the tree's there now and i can so, pluck from so it. ab ab was like you know, they pay this, but if they're 1099s and they use our service, then they just pay this. And maybe we should move into benefits and other stuff because there's a way to do this in a free market way that makes sense. And yep. we're proving it's a success, you know, that is successful. And I'm like, hey, man, you're in D.C. Can you take the train up to New York? Because it got to a point where they're like, well, financially, we just like, you know, we don't understand your whole up. Like, this is all very different, right? And, and I'm like, well, I got a finance guy. And A.B. is like, don't throw me under the bus again, because very famously, one of our um, investors, as it, as it came out now, I don't think he'd mind me saying, and he's an incredible person that, that I like a lot, was Vikram Pandit, who ran City. And uh, we had this... Ran famous, Citigroup, the big... Citigroup. And yeah, one we of had, the biggest banks in the world. We had fam a famous meeting where myself and Tom Bishop, and, and I was pitching Vikram, and, and Tom was talking about tech, and he, he got to the thing, and he asked me a finance question. I go, I don't fucking know. Anthony's a finance question. Uh, finance genius. I go, Anthony? And AB was like, did, like, did you just throw me under the bus with like, fan? like, what the fuck? We got the elevator and he's just like, hey, <laughs> like, all finance questions aren't like, just, you know, like, yeah, it's an entire massive. He goes, I have several, li several licenses and stuff. It doesn't make me an expert in all the finance. Like, maybe, you know, don't like hardline those questions to me. So, um, so he didn't want that to be this moment. I was like, oh no, it's good. You know, they know the part. So he comes up and we're pitching him and we stay another day and we're pitching him. So we're flying back on Virgin, which I'm sad to see go. And we connect from, from New York. We connect in Dallas, Love Field. And so we're, have a layover. The phone rings and, uh, it's Manju. So hello. And he goes, Hey, just met the board and everybody. And we talked and we just, just, you know, we decided we're not going to, invest in the series a you know blah 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 whatever and i'm like you yeah, know how i'm the foul whatever you know blah blah, blah we disconnect it's called base like, wait, wait 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 like we we just want to know would you be open to selling the entire thing and of course i'm like an entrepreneur so i'm like well i mean as an entrepreneur i'm always open to that but there's a lot to discuss but you know what would you well if you're open to it we're gonna we'd like to move in that direction whatever so i hang up and all and i look at ab and i go well they want to buy the company and ab says bullshit <laughs> <laughs> and at this point i don't think goldman sachs had ever or and not they don't acquire comp they're they're not like a not mergers and acquisitions company. they did acquire something before us it was general electric's deposit business <laughs> <laughs> small a small a small purchase yeah, not on the scale and, uh, but they don't buy startups. They don't. They don't we like the, acquire we the, we like Google. Does, we were the first right? one, right? And, and it wasn't an acquire because the first thing that happened is they looked at us. They were like, oh, "How many people didn't go to college? Who <laughs> smokes 
pod. I know that's Austin. Like, what are the like people? <laughs> what is this people, ragtag group of pirates? Right. When we, we, when we saw it, some people were like, were like some people that were jealous were like, oh, well, it was just an acquire. That's why they won't say the number. We won't say the number because I found out early on that when you sell a company, the only person that wants to say the number in the press is the entrepreneur. It's gonna be like, I made all that money, and it's like you didn't own that much of the company, and so it's like, yeah, it sold for two hundred fifty million. Uh, seven years later and you own 10% of that as a management team and you probably made like 3 million bucks but they go walking around like they made 250 million bucks and what I found is having a reputation as an entrepreneur who sells companies who doesn't give a shit numbers undisclosed nobody cares is great because you know who disclosing that number is not good for the person acquiring the company because then they're talking to five other companies or whatever, and now those companies think they're worth even more or whatever and so you can you know I've built a reputation as like hey we're super great We'll sell you the company. We don't really care about bragging about the numbers. We don't care about anything. And you'd be surprised at what some of the numbers are. But it's it's awesome to be able to have that kind of relationship. Um, and I plan on selling more companies in the future. So it's great. You know, oh, are we going to disclose the numbers? No. Now, if the number was like a billion dollars, I'm getting ready. I'm getting older. Maybe I'm looking at retirement. Maybe I want to write a book. Maybe it'd be good to add on top of all of these great stories, be like, and sold for a billion dollars. Because as we said earlier, somehow a billion dollars is a magic number, even though in the world of finance, that number is a rounding error in, in, in a lot of things. Um, so so anyway, we're set at a Chili's having strawberry margaritas. And you'd be like, Goldman Sachs. And I'm like, yeah, the people we were with in New York. I'm like, those people. He's like, no. He's like, they don't do that. I and mean, he comes from mine. He's like, this this does not happen. And then we had to be really quiet. We went through months and months of stuff. And then at South by, uh, I hosted President Obama on Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday, we we're still working. And late, late one night, maybe it was Friday night. I can't remember exactly when it was. AB and David are up there. And we have this great video of David looking at every paper. And he goes, I think it's finally done. And then he looks like he's just going to pass out. <laughs> and then uh, we took a picture of the three of us. And uh, they had sent a PR guy down. And he was just sitting there in the room, like, doing other stuff. Waiting. And he's like, all right, this is the plan. Tomorrow morning, you meet me here. This is what happened. And they just immediately jumped in. And I was on CNBC the next day getting all of this shit from the reporters who were like, aren't they just going to crush this company? And if you go to HonestDollar.com right now today, it's still call Honest Dollar. It says right. by Goldman Sachs. And, uh, you know, a couple of things have changed and the tech and this and that, of course, because they have a, you know, whole massive thing that they're doing with consumer and all. But it's like, you know, the funny story entrepreneurially is a Cinder bought chaotic moon to kind of be cool and hip and kind of just crushed all of the cool and hip out of it. Okay. And uh, so the company that that was like an easy transaction to be successful. And then the evil empire bought the thing that helps poor people and has done an amazingly great job of staying true to what our mission was and, and growing it. Um, so it's kind of like weird you right. know, to have those two stories. Um, but no, it's been, I mean, it was, a, it was, a, people it was can't amazing. process the, the cognitive dissonance of that story though. It must, there's some other, they're slipping the Mickey's somehow. <laughs> you get your SIP IRA, and we've we've purchased your children for indentured servitude. It's in the fine. It's in the it's Look, in the user and it's inevitable. Terms. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that companies like that will move into consumer, and to do so, they'll have to change their behavior. There's just no way. And you look at companies that are in consumer and haven't changed their behavior, like Wells Fargo. Jesus, how many more things can they fuck up? You know, they're like making customers up and making accounts up and making stuff up. Eventually, these other banks are going to move in that area. And seeing Goldman say, 
managing money is changing and this is changing and we're going to go into consumer. I mean, that's, I mean, you could go read a hundred articles about it, right? I mean, it's not, it, it's, it's not, uh, uh, it shouldn't be a shock to anyone. And the fact that they're going to have to play by some new rules, that they're going to have to do things differently, that they're going to have to engage social media, something that they haven't really had to do in their business, that they're going to have to do these things. This, is, this is, shouldn't shock and people should be happy about it. People should be like, ah, there's going to be some more transparency. There's going to be some more accountability. There's more of this and that. And maybe they'll do great and maybe they'll screw something up. But the fact is, is it's like, it's so easy to hate on all these companies. I mean, it's like now we hate on Apple because they're successful. Now everybody, I mean, Apple stock goes down and everybody's like, the beginning of the end of Apple. And it's like, I have a news flash for you. With $245 billion in cash, cash, and another twenty billion probably coming this quarter, they could probably stop selling shit and still pay everybody for an unbelievably long amount of time. Like, I'm sure they could work in perpetuity off the interest on the right. cash. I mean, with their current staff, it's like, probably. I mean, I love your I love your sensationalist title, but it's like I don't think they're going anywhere now. Will the iPhone lose dominance? Will this, yeah, all those things may happen? But this whole like somehow Apple is going to mysteriously go out of business overnight. It's like. Yeah, you're crazy. And, and by the way, Apple, for all of its faults and complaints, and you know, you know, I give the example about Tim Cook and Steve Jobs earlier, whatever. I love Steve Jobs. I think he was an amazing leader. I got to work with him twice in my career, once very briefly on a project at R&D, and, and once, of course, on the daily. And um, I think he's everything that everybody said he was and probably misunderstood in the, you know, the, the anger things, probably super... I mean, sure, but overplayed, but it's like, you know, it's like everything else gets examined and blown up. And, uh, and, and, uh, Tim Cook, um, you know, I've, he, what he's done in hiring Lisa Jackson and what she's done with their environmental programs, buying forest, taking them to their energy usage, all of these things. I mean, as a company, it's still so admirable in so many ways, but you know, Hey, the iPhone sales are down a little bit, so let's just, let's right. just all glom on and trash them. Yeah, it's They're funny, going it's out of funny when they, they just released their finances, finances for the fourth quarter, and it's 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 catastrophic. It's their second best quarter in the history of the company. Yeah, it's a catastrophe. So, yeah, so they're they're done. So we, uh, we've we've been going for a long time. Yeah, we have. Give us. I want just sum up where what you're doing right now. Here's the way computers work now: the iPad, your phone, uh, an HPC cluster. AWS, doesn't matter. All these computers basically calculate what we can do by hand. Okay? They just do it really fast. There's nothing these computers do that we couldn't do on a pen and a paper. It might take us five years, but there's nothing that they can do. They're essentially giant abacus. That's it. Zeros and ones, on or off, on off switches. Quantum computing will change computing more in the next 10 years then computing has changed in its entire entirety. And not just quantum computing, a whole class of what I call exotic computing. So quantum and neuromorphic and biological and optical and on and on. But quantum computing is at the forefront of that. And it, it is you have problems where you have a few inputs and you add an input and the evaluation time of that problem grows exponentially, then a computer that took 1600 seconds to solve it with 14 inputs takes 1,600 years to solve the same problem with 22 inputs and more than the time in the known universe to solve it with 30 inputs. 
Okay. So just to make sure, sure I'm, I'm going to spit some of this stuff sure. back to you to so make sure I'm, because I still don't really grok it at the end of the day. Uh, but it seems like you know, what you're saying is like, look, if you've got complex problems with a lot of a lot of variables going into them, the more well, variables well, don't, don't you think add. Of that way. Think, think of it this way. Think of the traveling salesperson problem. So what is that? We want to send a salesperson to 14 cities and we want to route them in the most efficient path. It's an optimization problem. It's a classic problem. Some people have argued it's been solved or not solved or whatever. There's all kind of, but use it as a baseline because it is a great example. And this is a computing, this is like a known kind of computing. This is a no, very famous problem. Like most anybody you know who's done anything with a computer knows this problem. If you did that on your laptop, your laptop's probably like 10 to the ninth operations. It's like a 10 to the, you know, 11th or 14th, whatever problem. It, it, it does it 10 to 11th. It does it in about 1600 seconds. Poof, there's the path. If you increase the number from 14, the number of cities to 22, okay? So you, you, you've added eight cities. So that's barely a number of, but the evaluation time of that problem goes through the roof exponentially. That same computer takes 1600 years to optimize that path. Huh. Okay. So that's what I say when I say you have a few inputs you've added. Yeah, that's really counterintuitive. That's really counterintuitive because it doesn't seem that much more So if you make it 28 cities, that same computer would take longer than the known time of the universe. Okay. It's not that it can't do it. It's that it takes forever to do it. So when people say quantum computers are faster, you hear all this bullshit about quantum supremacy. They're all, all the press is explaining it the wrong way. They're making it sound like it's going to make your Visa card transaction faster or replace something in data center. That's not what it's for. It's faster in the sense of this HPC cluster would take a thousand years to do it, and this thing could do it in a day or a week or a couple hours. So it's unbelievably faster, but not in the scales people are, are and only And not necessarily for every con type of problem. Definitely. Not even for every part of a problem. So you take something like Shor's algorithm, which is what you would use to break encryption, right? It's got five steps. Is it an odd number? Is it a factor of two co-primes? We take a number and pick a random number to divide it by. The fourth step is the only step we would need a quantum computer for, which is the order numbering, right? And then the fifth step, we could send that result back and say, okay, let's check everything. Do we go back at one or do we get our answer? So, so these things shouldn't even be thought of as computers in my mind. They should be thought of like coprocessors, cloud processors, right? Yeah, like a GPU or like... That's exactly if you're, right. If you're an old man, you'd be like, remember when you had the uh, the 386DX that had the floating point processor, right. coprocessor. So right. there would be like the quantum coprocessor. Now, that's not to say that eventually there won't be quantum computers with millions or even potentially a billion qubits, and the world will change dramatically by then, and it won't be a computer. It's just to say that that in their infancy, which they will be in for a while, they should be looked at as coprocessors to solve, and, and they shouldn't be looked at as solving problems. Everybody that says, I've got a proof where I could do this quantum thing faster on a quantum computer, I could do the, than it does on a classical thing, right? That's bullshit. These computers aren't meant to solve the problems of today or the problems we have of the past. They're meant to solve problems nobody's even thought of because it's a completely new computing paradigm. It's kind of like the way we're thinking of it today is the way people thought of computers when they first came out, and you had people who wrote finances and ledgers and people like, well, we could probably do that on a computer. We could, we could keep those same notes. Visicalc. And they weren't thinking about like high frequency trading or 
quantum Monte Carlos or any of this stuff. Or 3D like, graphics and, that's and video how, games. And, and that's kind of how we're thinking of quantum computing. Everybody's like, oh, well, we could maybe do this thing faster or whatever. And that's not everybody in the field, but that's the majority of people outside of the field. And some of the people in the field are comparing differently. So the basic premise of StrangeWorks, to answer your question succinctly, is we want to democratize and distribute the access to this technology. And we want to help herald this age of quantum computing and bring it faster, bring it in from 20 years to 10 to three by making it where businesses can see value that they demonstrable value that they can say, we invested X amount into quantum and we got this return on investment. And that's really the, the, the focus. And by building a developer community and educating a lot more people and lowering the barrier to entry, you don't have to be a physicist and a chemist and a software developer, and also really great at math, to program one, you maybe just have to be one or two of those things. And then um, you've also got a fund. And that's simple to explain, right? So explain we, we, that. Explain that. Mike, Mike Irwin has been wanting to do a fund. I said the other night. At, so what is a fund? What so, is this? So a fund being we're raising money to distribute to startups that we're going to manage, that we're going to get our investors a return, right? We've had our own private funds. Um, I think Mike's average like 39% IRR on those or something. What's IRR? So the the rate of return, right? So we, we've we've done very well with those. The this fund is basically for me my way of saying everybody who's always sent me a thing about like I wish I would have invested in Honest Dollar or Chaotic Moon or this thing or I would have done this. I now have a thing of saying, hey, great news! You can actually invest in everything I'm invested in. I've started a fund, and by the way, Mike and I are two of the major LPs in the fund. So we've put millions of dollars into this thing. So one, we're not asking to manage your money and not have any skin in the game. And two, you're uh, investing in everything I'm investing in. So great news, all those people that <laughs> always give me shit could just write a check to the fund and then they're literally in every deal that I'm in, okay? And every deal that I'm doing is in the fund, right? So we ran it for about the last year and we made it several investments, uh, a medical company, we've invested in Strangeworks, we invested in a drone company, we invested in a, a bunch of stuff so that we could come instead of like a lot of funds where they say, well, I used to money manage at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or whatever, John, give me your money, I'm gonna invest in startups, here's all this reasons, it's all hot. We're like, look, we are the startups and we are operators of startups, and we are also investors in startups, and we've done it for years, and we're now offering that to you, and we wanted to boil down the risk, so all the fees are reinvested in the fund. We don't keep those and pocket them. We just want the carry if we're successful. So already, our interests are more aligned. And, and second, um, we've put in more money probably than you will, so we have more risk in the game. So then our interests, again, are aligned, right? And we have all these points of alignment. It goes on and on and on. And by the way, we actively manage these things the same way we've managed all the startups we've sold. So again, our interests are aligned. So there's, so it's really great. It's a different approach. And, and, and the fun thesis is simple. Entrepreneurs aren't operators. And if you, if you give your money to an entrepreneur uh, and they lose it, and you come to me and you're like, I gave my money to this entrepreneur and they lost it. I'm gonna be like, shock. And by the way, entrepreneurs shouldn't be operators. Entrepreneurs are these amazing, talented, hardworking people that are visionaries in so many ways and they need to have a support infrastructure put around them so that they can do the thing that they do best. It is not running QuickBooks. I can guarantee it. 
It is not coming up with the advertising plan. It is not the go-to-market strategy. It is none of those things that we ask them to do. They, they have the idea and they have the execution, they have the, the vision. And so what we do is we put uh, an active management system around them when we make an investment. And the other thing we do is we don't invest in a certain vertical or a certain type of startup. We invest in all startups specifically at a moment in time in the maturity of that startup when the alpha is coming in and we can apply the most leverage operationally and management-wise, kind of like a PE firm, like a what firm? Like a PE firm. Like a what private, is that? Like a private equity firm. Sure, okay, sure. To get the best uh, result for us and our investors and the entrepreneurs. And what's great is usually the entrepreneurs aren't doing a whole lot of rounds with us. So the ones we've done in the past before the fund, they've kept more of the company for themselves and they've made more money when it exits. So now they're all coming back with the, like, I've got another idea and you made me rich, so I want to work with you, right? And so what we did, we did a little event the other night to kind of announce it. And we basically had some of the entrepreneurs, not all of them did as great a job because they, some of them got super nervous. But the basic idea was we're going to have the entrepreneurs that we've invested in step up and be like, why are they working with us? They could take money from anybody. You know, why do they like being managed? Why do they like all of these things? Because they really do if you talk to them. They really enjoy the fact that, oh, my God, I don't have to worry about the finance. I've got somebody who's going to help take care of that. Not do it for them, but who's going to give them a framework to you know, with which to operate. Oh man, getting things manufactured is freaking hard. I've got someone that has experience is going to help me with that. That's amazing. Right? So it's a different kind. We don't call it venture capital. We call it entrepreneurial capital. Our trademark is, you know, venture beyond capital. Cause you know, Mike's as good at the marketing stuff as I am. <laughs> you know, the, uh, I mean, I think this is, um, a great place for us to, kind of come to a close because I think what you've really done is you've you've gone on this unbelievable journey of 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 learning and starting companies and building teams and and now you're now you're getting to take that and sort of and scale it and bring it to so many other to as many people as you can find who I think you know fit your criteria well that's the real challenge right the real challenge is this I left chaotic moon to see if it was me and I know no I can do it so now it's the opposite. I did that to, to prove to myself, is it me? Am I that talent? Now I'm claiming I have a system, a model. I have a functionality, this method of systematize my part of it. And Mike has done this incredible job on systematizing his. So now what we're doing is saying, if that's true, then it can be scaled. And so now it's the opposite. Now I want to see, is it me? Or can I take a group of 20, 50, 70 entrepreneurs and help make them all successful? And I think we can, because the illusion of venture capital is they return 23% on average. Sure, the top half a half a percent, everybody else loses money, right? And 99 out of 100 startups fail. Why? Right? Well, part of it's that it's just hard to, to figure out what's coming next. So I think some I, of that's inherent. I, I in, think it, in the I entrepreneurial think it, I, discovery I think process. It's, I think it's all bullshit. I think half of them are horrible ideas. Nobody's, everybody's <laughs> afraid to be like, "I'm sorry, your baby's ugly," and, and and a great deal of them, I think, it's because of this stuff that I talk about, where we romanticize it. We, I have seen two entrepreneurs who could have sold for hundreds of millions of dollars who went out of business because. They and their investors were like, no, this is a billion, two billion, six billion dollar one guy company. It's like, yeah, but it's a $200 million company right now. 
you only took 10 million in investment four years ago and you still own it all. He's literally going to take 130, $140 million out of that deal. And it's a Forex for his investors. And they're like, it's got to be more than a Forex. And it's going to be, it's like, I return the money you gave to me once every year as an investor. If I give you a million dollars, you give me a million dollars back a year. I think that's a great investment. <laughs> Maybe I'm not greedy enough, but that sounds amazing. And they, and they don't do it. They don't do a deal. And then they're out of business. And you read about this all the time. The companies that are worth a billion dollar valuation. And this is my last thing. Valuation is not value. And the, and the lesson for all the entrepreneurs out there that are dealing with VCs is this. They're the same as you. They're struggling or they're out of business. They're out raising money. And they have a product. And that product is you. The reason they don't sign NDAs the reason they want copies of your presentations is so that when they're raising money from whatever teachers, fund, retirement, whatever bullshit, and they say, oh man, we really like quantum computing and freaking there was a company that did video production that could do movies and TV shows and awesome content stuff. They can pull out John and Worley and be like, well, these are some examples of the kind of things we've been looking at for our portfolio, even though they told us they're not going to give us any money. So never forget that everybody's got a boss they're no different than you right you are their product and so you know you can change that that dynamic in that relationship well i think with that we will uh we will uh sign off i think um if there is is there do you have a last do you have a last short piece of advice for somebody who wants to who has an idea they have no experience they they have experience in their field they've got an idea to start a company what is the first thing they should do Build the idea. Don't go start a company. Don't go file stuff. Make the thing work. Go do anything. Because here's where somebody like me will get really excited and invest in you. Is if you've done the bare minimal amount of work it takes to take something out of your head and manifest it in the real world. Even if it looks like shit and barely works. If you can just say, I had a concept and I can demonstrate to you in the most basic of ways I can make that concept work in software and hardware as a widget, as a whatever. I'm super impressed by that. That I love. And then from there, there's a way to build something. But so many people skip over the whole building the idea part. They build a company, they get money, they build marketing, they build a brand, they build all this stuff. And then later they find out the idea may be impossible to build or they never built the idea or it's a shitty idea or whatever. Build it first. Like just stay at your day job. Use your credit card, buy whatever you need, build it nights and weekends. There's plenty of outsourced software developers. There's plenty of outsourced software. There's a company we invested in called Patcher, which allows you to build circuit boards with no knowledge and click a button and they'll ship it off to people and have the circuit boards built and shipped to your house. Like you live in the greatest time to be alive as an entrepreneur. There's no excuse why you can't spend just a little bit of money probably sub a couple thousand dollars for any idea, hardware or software and prove it out enough to say, I had an idea and it's awesome, but I went this extra step and I built a very rough prototype. And now I would like some money to do that. And I guarantee you investors will respond a million times better. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at Our producer is Jesse Bennett. 
Thanks again and speak to you next time.